Island, somewhere between heaven and earth, where every dream you ever had can come true. What do you want to be? A king, a queen, a warrior, a poet, a champion. Maybe you want to be loved by everybody, or just somebody. Just tell me the life you really want to live, and Mr. Rock and I will make it real. The plan! The plan! The character Mr. Rourke, I had to identify with him. I identify him with something. I said, why is he, he can grant his fantasies? He can go away. And they can go back in time, or forward into the future. He can do all kinds of things. What is he? Is he? He's not God, certainly. There's only one God. He's not the devil. Not what is he? What is he? And even though the audience didn't realize what I was thinking, but I had to have something to hang on to. What is he? And I decided that this man, it was an angel that still had a little bit of sin of pride in him, a little too proud. And I play them sometimes when, when Tattoo would say, can we do that, boss? Of course we can do that, Tattoo. You know what I mean? I used that a little bit, but a little too much pride. So he is in charge of purgatory. And he has this little cherub to help him, charge in purgatory, where people go through tests. And some of them go for the better and some for the worse. But it's, it's, that's what I thought of it as a, a place of purification and in granting these fantasies, you know, which were some that were very eerie and some of them were comical and so forth. But uh, that's the way I play them inside of me. And it's just the pleasure of every week saying, who's in the, in the cast next week? Oh, so and so, wonderful, you know. The young man who played Tattoo, Hervé Vilches, was a very talented, very charming, imaginative, a wonderful photographer, a wonderful painter. He was incredible. But, and, and in the beginning, absolutely delightful. As the fan mail came, and he read all his fan mail, a, a man who suffers from being, you know, dwarfed and having trouble breathing because his little chest was not big enough for the lungs or the thing, he had, when he was breathing, and then he, I don't know, something happened to him. There was a little change. He became a little arrogant, to tell you the truth, a little arrogant. And he used to come in and say, never say good morning and carry a gun, you know. And he, but outside of, and they became involved in sort of a little bit of the hippie era, you know, with, with hippies and so forth, which is fine. but. It wasn't the cute little guy with the little suit, you know, the man that he left the thing and let the hair grow, and they dressed in strange manner. He felt he, he was unkempt, 
You know, he wasn't, I, I don't know, that this cute, he was such a cute guy. I was so sorry what happened to him that committed suicide eventually, you know. Now, forgive me for saying this, but I had to say it. Uh, when you had to use something more than washing your hands, something more important that nature calls you to do, you were sitting down and, and the, the wall was here. And instead of facing that way, where there was a little room, the thing facing it, so you couldn't, couldn't get up. It was very difficult to do anything. So I asked, I said, could I have a, a, a motorhome that, that the thing faces that way so I can, you know. The, the response came, yes. Yes, but there is, it'll be about, um, about uh, three feet longer than, than this motorhome. It's about three feet longer. I said, well, is that? No, that's fine. So I got that thing, three feet longer. It was comfortable facing that way, nicer. Everybody, I want one exactly like Ricardo. I mean, he's a very short little man. I mean, this motorhome was like huge for him. He wanted exactly like that. Dunkin' Donuts introduces new minis. They're smaller than our regular donuts, so now you don't have to choose just one. You can have more of your favorites each time you come in. No, no, the, the faucet, the coffee house, no, no, the Buy plenty of new Dunkin' Minis, so you won't get caught short. All right, welcome All right. <laughs> episode 23 of CFX as you have no doubt discerned, is about Fantasy Island. And by the way, I had to put in that one clip where just because Ricardo Montalban says hippies. Hippies. Oh, yeah. like, I, wanted to, I thought that was hilarious. And obviously, Dunkin' Donuts is uh, sort of like almost poking fun at uh, Hervé's uh, size, which is really weird and maybe not uh, so politically correct these days. Anyway, welcome to episode 23, Fantasy Island. Uh, CFX, of course, is the place where we examine different cultural uh, ephemera, music, TV here, movies, stage, screen, toys. What else are we going to do? Uh, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever we, we decide like. to do, I guess. So far, we've been doing, you know, uh, TV, movies, uh, radio, even a little bit. We might do books um, in the future. Right. Hint, hint, we might do a book. Or a series of books that's definitely in the in the cards, as it were. Um, so here is all, the way we do it. Of course, is we uh, look at the context of the time something came out uh, and the valuation in the future. Do we think it's going to go up from a cultural sense? Go down? Uh, to be going short or stay neutral? And uh, you'll figure that out. It's not very complicated. So here we are. Fantasy Island, you know it, you've heard of it. Even if you don't know the original version, which of course we're covering, you may have seen there's like a, a, two different reboots of it, I think, right? Three. Uh, three. There's actually three. Yeah, three. we'll get okay. into that. We'll get into that. And and of course, you know, the thing we should mention too is that we go, we could go long, we could go short, or we could just end up in a kind of purgatory, you know? <laughs> like, I felt like I felt like this was kind of a test uh, watching these shows, but we'll get, I don't want to... Uh, reveal the the twist uh too soon um so maybe we should go into what this show is and you know some of the major characters so why don't you uh start off 
by take, talking about the uh, the plot of the show, some of the characters, the cast. Yeah, all right, and, all right. And I'll, I'll do and it. I'll um, so take over, Adam. All right, so um, so yeah, the basic premise of the show is there is this figure, Mister Rourke, and he has an assistant tattoo. Mister Rourke being played by Ricardo Montalban, who will go into more in the history, his background, which is really interesting. And then Herve Velichez played um, tattoo. We'll also go into a bit of his background. Uh, the show was created uh, by Aaron Spelling and a writer named Gene Levitt. Um, but again, we'll go more into that in the history. But the basic idea is there is this island where people can go and live out their fantasies. And it is controlled by Rourke, who seems to be sort of a supernatural being. That's sort of revealed uh, throughout the show's history. They kind of give more clues uh, to that. And it, so it's kind of a anthology show but with these re- recurring kind of brackets at the beginning of the end that are very memorable and and a certain formula where work sort of introduces the people coming onto the uh, on, onto the island reveals their fantasy and almost always there's sort of a um you get you get you know be be careful what you wish for moral to these fantasies right and often people aren't getting what they want but what they need and They often turn dark. It's kind of a horror show. And we're going to go into how crazy that got. Um, But basically, uh, you know, and there's this iconic thing where the the guests, with with a few exceptions, we'll get into some of the little quasi spinoffs they did. But for the most part, the guests arrive in in this plane. And uh, there's the iconic uh, intro where Tattoo rings a bell in this uh, little tower and yells, de plane, de plane, which you heard uh, that clip at the beginning. What's hilarious about that is if you watch the clips of what uh, Slip is talking about here, the plane lands and it's supposed to be this tropical island and trees. But if you look carefully right in the middle of the screen, you can see a street lamp right in the middle. Oh, of really? The, uh, yeah, right in the middle of it where they actually filmed this, which was on a back lot in Burbank, uh, California. You can actually see a street, you know, a big old street, uh, you know, post and lamp right in the middle of it which they didn't really, you know, try to, you know, get out of there too uh, carefully. I mean, it's right dab in the middle of it. And it's just uh Well, TVs were a lot smaller and a lot blurrier back then. So yeah. it might have been a little hard for people to notice. I mean, we'll get more into the filming because it was filmed actually in different places, different segments were. Um, but yeah, a lot of it, the majority was filmed in Burbank. And um, so that's not surprising. Uh, you know, and, and originally the show, they'd wanted to have a female uh you know, assistant. And they eventually did do this. They added Julie later in the season, who's played by Wendy Shaw. And she uh, was Rourke's goddaughter, supposedly. And she was only in one year. Um, And then later, when as as, uh, Ricardo Montalban alluded to in those interview clips at the beginning, Hervé Villachez was a problematic kind of guy in a lot of ways. He had a lot of issues. Um, We'll talk more about that in the history. But... um, he was finally uh, fired from the show in 1983. Uh, and for one more season, we had Christopher Hewitt playing Lawrence, who was kind of a, uh, you know, a precursor to the character he would later make famous on the sitcom uh, Mr. Belvedere. It's essentially the same character. Um, and that you can see if you see clips of that, the chemistry is just not there. I mean, there's always a little bit of banter at the beginning of the show between Herbert. There's always some scheme Herbie Villachez is trying to get into and, uh, or tattoo is trying to get into and Rourke. There's kind of a little comic back and forth, and that's kind of uh, you know the formula. And then of course, th- 
there's, you know, all of these other people on the island who I guess are native to the island. Um, you know, we'll talk about where the island was supposed to be in the in in kind of the production background, but they are just kind of there. And and they, you know, they're often like kind of clad in these little Hawaiian, you know, it's like it's like the same thing you would see, you know, flying into Hawaii back in the day where the 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 Hawaiian girl would put the lure, you know, put the put the um uh you know the the flowers lay. around your neck, the the yeah, the lay around your neck and all this. It's kind of that same kind of thing. And then Rourke just kind of introduces each character. And of course, this show made extensive use. Um, it was kind of a the show was one of the kind of things that spelling kind of pioneered, which we'll get into more in the history, which is this idea of having not just one guest star like on Columbo, one or two guest stars on a, on a show like Columbo or Law and Order, but a whole ensemble of guest stars. Um, and they reuse so many of these guest stars for different characters over and over again, because the show was kind of an anthology show where you'd have two different stories that didn't really intersect, but Rourke would be interacting with the people throughout their fantasy. And it almost always had a dark turn. There was definitely a horror element to this show. Um, so at any rate, uh, let's, uh, is there anything you wanted to say about the characters before I go more into the zeitgeist and the history? No, just that the, you were mentioning all these native Islanders who were around and the economic model for supporting um, all of these people doesn't really make sense uh, because whether did the guests pay for Fantasy Island? Apparently, yes, but not often. They, you know, they were kind of waived. The fee was waived and things like that. So we'll get into all that, you know, maybe a little too much, but this is what we do here, right? Is sort of think about, does this make sense? And when it doesn't make sense, uh, course correct that as we will get into uh, as a, a surprise uh, later. So Take it away, show background and history. All right. First, let's talk about the zeitgeist of the times and the show. Um, I mean, really, when I think of this show, I think of it as the love boat crossed with Twilight Zone. Like, it's it's really an anthology show in the tradition of something like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Outer Limits, and The Twilight Zone, because it has that same kind of twisty, the stories are that same kind of twisty, um, you know, similar to the story The Monkey's Paw, right? Uh, where someone gets this uh, monkey's paw and they can make wishes and it ends up backfiring on them. It's almost a kind of a dark version of um, uh, the gift of the Magi, that story by O. Henry, where, you know, people, people are trying to get something for somebody else and it ends up not working, but then it ends up working. It's like a twisty kind of plot. So yep. it's definitely influenced by those shows. Um, but at the same time, it's this new kind of show that Aaron Spelling kind of created which is, as I mentioned, these shows where they had their core cast, which is basically just Rourke and Tattoo and maybe Julie or Lawrence. And they they had the opening with them, but then they have all these guest stars, right? And this was very similar to another show that was on around this time that is inextricably linked with Fantasy Island, which was Love Boat. They were on the same night and they were kind of uh, you know, it was like a, anytime they would have promos, they would do the Love Boat promo and then the Fantasy Island promo. And then even there's one episode where Tattoo actually mentions the Love Boat. Um, and Rourke promises to bring the Love Boat to Fantasy Island, <laughs> which I think means that, that you know, and obviously that was true. A lot of the cast members were shared. Uh, you know, they obviously, you obviously had Ted Lang showing up in a few episodes. You had uh, 
you know, Gopher and Doc and uh, Lauren Twos was in there and even Jill Whelan who would play what she's a little girl on Love Boat, right? Um, yeah. Who's also an airplane, you know, Vicky. she plays the girl. Yeah, a Vicky on, on Love Boat, right? So those shows were inextricably linked. And that was actually first pioneered by a show that Aaron Spelling worked on in the early 60s called Burke's Law. This was one of the first shows to do this. Now, obviously there was stuff like Gunsmoke that would have guests. There was stuff like, um, you know, Route 66, uh, two travelers that run into various people and there's uh, different stories. But I would say the love boat was the first show that we really recognized as this format and fantasy Island followed a very similar format where they just would use these kind of B rate celebrities, sometimes a rate, um, but mostly B rate celebrities. And they would reuse them again and again, into different characters. A lot of B, older B was, actors. B was aspirational. Let's be honest. It's yeah. Yeah, like exactly. D D yeah. D E maybe yeah. F at times. I mean, you, you know, like what's his name? Uh, Ken Barry from those Disney movies isn't a bunch of these. They had um, F Troop. F Troop. Yeah. F Troop. And they had, um, you know, Bob Denver was in some of these. They had, uh, you know, uh, other actors like Academy Award winning actors like Ray Milland is in one called Nightmare that I might talk a little bit about in my evaluation. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, the other thing that surrounds this is the whole six, uh, sexy 70s thing we've talked about in the game show episode, as well as uh, a little bit in the AM radio, AM gold episode, and a lot of it in the Three's Company episode. Right. And obviously, we'll talk about that, but there are episodes of the show where the whole episode is centered around just showing Barbie Benton in a bikini or something. You know, I mean, they had like these beautiful uh, guest star women and a lot of times it was just about getting them in an outfit for a half an hour or whatever. Um, so the show, as far as the background goes, I mean, just we're going to do a little background on Aaron Spelling, Ricardo Montalban and Herbie Villachez, because they are the kind of principal force of the show. Um, as far as Aaron Spelling, I mean, he, um, you know, would eventually become this incredible TV mogul who would uh, have hit shows, major hit. I mean, talking about number one shows over decades. Um, but he started out, um, you know, he grew up in Dallas, Texas. He was uh, very much bullied as a kid because he was Jewish in an area where there weren't a lot of Jews. And it's, of course, the Deep South. Uh, he eventually uh, served in World War II. He was a World War II pilot. And then after getting out of the war, he decided to become an actor. So he came to Hollywood and he was an actor in the early 50s. And he managed to transition to screenwriting and producing uh, I mentioned one of the first shows he produced was this early 60s show called Burke's Law. Um, he formed a couple of side production companies, one with uh, uh, another producer named Leonard Goldberg, one with Danny Thomas, who, of course, was uh, the actor as well as producer. And they produced a series of shows in the 60s, including The Mod Squad and in the early 70s, The Rookies and Family. Um, family was kind of like a drama, like Eight is Enough. I remember that being on a reruns. So I don't think I ever watched Family. But that was his big show. And then, of course, he really broke out with The Love Boat, Fantasy Island. And, and you know, I'm sure we'll get to The Love Boat. And I'm sure we'll get to this last one, Charlie's Angels, because we watched all these as a kid. Um, his success would continue after these shows. I mean, The Love Boat and Fantasy Island ended in kind of the mid-80s. But then he had Dynasty, right. which was absolutely huge. Uh, one of, always in the top five. And then in the 90s, he had Beverly Hills 90210, another one we're definitely going to get to. Um, and then Melrose Place, right? So he he still had huge shows uh, decades later. Now, Ricardo Montalban, who's the star of this show, um, the main actor, uh, you know, had a long career before this. 
Um, he was actually born in Mexico in 19 Mexico City in 1920. So he was like in his 50s when this was on. Um, he was born with a malformation of the spine called arteriovenous malformation. Uh, this would play out later because he would get injured and always would limp. Um, and I didn't really notice this on the show because he hides it pretty well. Um, he started out in these films called The Soundies, which were these little films played in kind of movie jukeboxes. Um, he made a name for himself in a film called Santa that uh, got him noticed uh, in 1943, got him noticed by Hollywood. He eventually starred as kind of the dashing bullfighter kind of character in a million films. Yeah. Uh, like Fia, he was in one called Fiesta in 1947, which was his Naturally. first Hollywood film with Esther Williams. He had a few more with her. Uh, in 1951, he was a, kind of a, a swashbuckling action star. He played in a, a film called Mask of the Renegade, Renegade, and he played in another Western across the wide Missouri. That's when he got the back injury. He actually was fell, fell off a horse and was partially trampled by a horse. And this exacerbated his already genetic uh, back injury to where he had a limp for the rest of his career. Um, he was in a bunch of B movies in the fifties and, um, Italian films. He got, did a little bit on Broadway where he got nominated for a Tony for his work with Lena Horne in the musical Jamaica. And he finally transitioned to TV in the 1960s. So he was in, you know, guest parts of wild, wild West mission impossible, the man from uncle, and most famously in star Trek as, uh, Noonien Singh in the great episode space seed. Um, and um, in the 70s, he continued in TV a little bit. He's, he plays actually a bullfighter on a great episode of Columbo. He was in the uh, the third and fourth Planet of the Apes movies as a circus. Uh, you know, a guy who ran a circus who had the young ape, you know, Caesar and kind of raised him up to be, uh, you know, the leader of and kind of the one who turns the planet into the Planet of the Apes, uh, played by um, Roddy McDowell, who we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, and those movies were Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And then uh, before Fantasy Island, he was probably most known for this commercial that we're going to play for the Chrysler Cordoba. I know my own needs. And what I need from an automobile, I know I get from this new Cordoba. I could ask for nothing beyond the quality of Cordoba's workmanship, the tastefulness of its appearance. I request nothing beyond the thickly cushioned luxury of seats available even in soft Corinthian leather. Yet it is on the highway where Cordoba best answers my demands. There you go. So that famous commercial <laughs> where some advertising Don Draper genius invented the whole thing of Corinthian leather, which is not a thing that actually exists. Yeah. Um, it's probably more like Corinthian vinyl and that. Yeah. In that Naga hide. Yeah, exactly. But so he, so he was really famous for that. And then, of course, he got the part on Fantasy Island, his most iconic role, uh, actually vying with one other role, which uh, is, uh, of course, he returns in uh, after after. During Fantasy Island, he was hired to play Khan again in the great uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. <clears throat> and of course, you know, everyone talks about this. He's wearing this, uh, you know, outfit that reveals his chest and everyone thought it was fake because he's so jacked. But no, even with his back injury, he trained his whole life and he was completely ripped. So, uh, you know, I'm surprised we didn't get any Rourke, Rourke uh, poolside scenes where he just shows it off. They didn't really do that with guys that much in the 70s. You know, there's a couple of guys in Fantasy Island that are kind of 
like, yeah, there's a guy who plays Tarzan and he's kind of jacked, you know, and they, they show it. But for the most part, it's all about the ladies uh, back then. Uh, they don't do that. They do that more now, of course. Uh, you know, and after that, he had bit parts here and there in television. He had a serious back surgery to correct his longstanding injuries in 1993. Uh, just like with most back surgeries didn't go terribly well. Uh, so he was kind of in a wheelchair for most of the rest of his life. He was not very mobile. Um, and he was probably most famous at the end of his life for doing a character in the, in the spy kids films, uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, children's films. Um, and he died in 2009. So he lived to be nine, almost 90 years old. Um, and that's kind of his story. And then with Hervé Villachez, you know, he was born with dwarfism in 1943. And um, he uh, was born in actually born in Nazi, uh, Nazi occupied Paris. He was very bullied as a child um, and because of his condition. But interestingly enough, he was actually a pretty accomplished painter, and he actually trained as an artist as a very young man and was, the, at the time, the youngest artist to have his work displayed in the Museum of Paris. Uh, he started acting in the 60s. His first famous role didn't come till 1974. This is when he played the character of Knickknack, who was, uh, you know, Scaramanga, played by Christopher Lee, his manservant, and um, his uh, kind of... Uh, you know, assistant in crime, as it were, as conspirator, co-conspirator. Um, on that set, uh, Roger Roger Moore talks about how Villachez had a little problem, which was that he was literally a sex maniac. <laughs> and um, he, you know, was very notorious for, um, what was this when he had the sign on his door? Or was that? Yeah, famous, don't you know? talk about that yet. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, it's part of the history. Yeah, but, but I mean... Uh, the what was on his door then yeah the, uh, okay yeah, yeah he had a sign on his door yeah oh i see what you mean we're not going to talk about that yet <laughs> so anyway um yeah so uh it let's just say he advertised his uh his uh sexual uh openness and yeah he was constantly harassing the women on the set this behavior would continue in 1977 when he got the job on fantasy island um as ricardo montalban mentioned in that interview he his behavior became more arrogant as he got more fan mail. He wanted to have the same wage as Rourke. Um, and the producers disagreed. And after all of his uh, problems, uh, he was fired in 1983 and replaced by um, Christopher Hewitt. Uh, in the late 70s, he played Oscar the Grouch for a little bit on Sesame Street, um, you know, just being inside the costume. And then he had a few B movies. He was in Airplane 2. He was in a really B-rate movie called Forbidden Galaxy. Um, he became a child abuse advocate, so that I wonder if he had been abused um, you well, know, later he, in anti-abuse life. Anti-abuse advocate. He was yeah, child advocating. abuse, anti-abuse. <laughs> oh, that is, yeah, he was he was he was a woman abuse advocate and an anti-child abuse advocate. There you go. Advocate. There yeah. you go. That that there you go. I'm following. So anyway, now. right. So anyway, uh, he finally ended up committing suicide in 1993. Obviously, he had psychological problems. But as Ricardo Montalban alluded to, you know, when you're born with this condition, it's like your organs are too big for your body and you have all these const- all this constant pain. So he had a lot of suffering. So that was really tragic. Uh, the show, as far as the production goes, uh, you know, Aaron Spelling, uh, Leonard uh, Goldberg were kind of shooting some ideas to ABC exec, exec Brandon Stoddard. And, you know, they were frustrated because he was shooting down every idea. So 
alleged, this might be apocryphal, but Spelling supposedly said, what do you want? An island that people can go to and all of their sexual fantasies will be realized. Yeah. And they decided that's what they did want. Um, Gene Levitt uh, was a TV writer for Combat and McLeod, uh, you know, kind of created the show. By the way, I do want to say that that idea was rediscovered by Job in Arrested Development as Fuck Island. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so anyway, originally they wanted to get Orson Welles uh, to be Mr. Rourke, but they decided against it. Um, they had some disagreements over the content. Uh, the filming was and there's done. there's only so much wine and that's brandy on Fantasy that's Island. True. Orson Welles wasn't going to hack it. Yeah. The um, yeah, I think uh, you know they they the film the um show was supposed to take place on an island that was just outside of French Guiana near Devil's Island, um and the um you know they started filming in various locations. So obviously the plane flying over the falls is actually the Wailua Falls in Kauai, and some of the overhead shots are Kauai. Um, the, the scene with the bell and, you know, Deplane Deplane is actually in a cottage called the Queen Anne Cottage in Los Angeles Arboretum. And the whole gazebo thing is there as well. And then, so, of course, a lot of it was filmed on studios in Burbank. Um, the plane is actually one of these planes that lands on water. It's called a Grumman Widgeon aircraft that was used. Um, the show started out with two original films. And in the inter- in at the beginning, there was this whole uh, thing about, you know, how much it would cost to go to Fantasy Island. And they had originally planned to have Rourke kind of be in New York, kind of recruiting people. They would revisit this in one of the remakes. Um, but the idea is that originally it would be uh, a certain fee. And then later it was changed to... Um, you know, originally it was each guest would pay fifty thousand dollars. It's about right. two hundred thousand dollars now. Um, and later they basically decide that a guest could pay what they wanted, and then they just kind of drop the whole idea of even talking about the payment at all. And it didn't at, make at sense point. on the payment because most of the people who visited, even early on, there's no way they're going to cough up fifty thousand dollars. You know, there's a, there's a people who are like in one famous episode. There's a guy who's a mechanic. There's a, you know, right. that, that we were, that we were talking about. So it, it's like, uh, it didn't make sense anyway. It's like one of these weird, weird plot points that. Yeah, exactly. Some of the out. fantasies are to be rich. Right. Like, exactly. Like, I wish I could have $50,000 of 1977 money to do this fantasy. And yeah, it didn't, yeah. it didn't really work out. Uh, the show. So again, there were two original movies that were longer. They had three fantasies each. I'll be talking about the first one in my evaluation a little bit. Uh, the show ran from, as I mentioned many times, 77 to 84. Um, it principally ran on Saturday night as a kind of double header with the love boat. And any promos that were on TV would always mention these two shows together. Yeah. Um, they're so similar, right? I mean, they're almost the same show, except the love boat is more comedic, where Fantasy Island is generally more scary. And but the but the love boat also has this kind of idea of people looking for something and getting something else, you know. But it's more of a lighthearted show, again, with the same kind of concept of different guest stars with the with a and then a, a cast that, that are the employees of the boat. So it's almost the same thing. Um, they did do the show was typically on Saturday nights at 10 p.m. and later it would be on late night Monday night. So this 
kind of will come to our personal histories because I'm trying to figure out how, if I would have watched this in the original format or just syndicated. I honestly don't remember, but um, we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, there was a spinoff uh, that was just run for two episodes in the 1979 season, which was called Fantasy Island Hack Family Hour. And this was Fantasy Island for kids. And we'll be talking a little bit about one of these episodes. How fucked up is that? So Fantasy Island for kids, they don't arrive in a plane. They arrive in a hot air balloon. Like they're all stuffed into this hot air balloon basket. It's so funny. And they land on the island. And then there's all of these like amusement park rides and shit on right when they get there. There's kids eating ice cream. And that's Michael all, Jackson. Right. Exactly. That's like, uh, yeah, that's the horror. You you know, I want to go visit Never Neverland and then you yeah. get a surprise. Um, but anyways, so there's all the, the kids eating ice cream and shit. And then there's like fucking llamas, just like fucking <laughs> llamas walking around. It's so weird. They only did it twice. Um, one of the episodes I will talk about a little bit called Amusement Park slash Rockstars, which features uh, Ted Lang and Scott Baio. Uh, and I believe Jill Whelan again yeah. um, in a different part. Um you know, and and again, uh, you know, we mentioned Wendy Shaw joining uh, Christopher Hewitt. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the guest stars in our evaluation, but they were repeated a lot. Um, obviously, the show was syndicated. I think that's how probably Jeff and I saw the majority of the episodes, but it was on at a time where I would have been watching it uh, just because I was, you know, when it ended, I was like 15. So I definitely could have watched it on Saturday nights or Monday nights later, although Monday nights would have been unlikely with my school schedule. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was in syndication for years. And then of course it was in streaming. Uh, now it's on Tubi. You can watch it on Tubi and some select stuff on YouTube. Now it was the thing about the fantasy Island concept is it's kind of stood the test of time in a way. Um, it was rebooted in 1998, uh, with Malcolm McDowell as Mr. Rourke as a very completely unappealing, you know, it's almost like he, you know, Roddy McDowell played the devil, Malcolm McDowell. I mean, this is the guy from Clockwork Orange and, you know, um, yeah. he could, he could have obviously been the villain, you know, he just didn't really fit the part. I tried to watch the first episode. I couldn't get through it. Um, it had like these two old actors, I think Finkus Fievel or whatever that guy's name is. He is like one of them and they run a travel agency that's linked to fantasy Island. And that's how the <laughs> show starts. So it was like trying to do the original concept. They were like recruiters and this guy comes in from the rain and they, you know, it's all kind of magical. The rains, the rain stops when he, he stops. And then he's like, I need to go. The rain stopped. And he goes out and it starts again. And they, they have a pneumatic tube that connects all the way to the Island and they send up his, his letter there. And, and it's just really dumb. There's like, um, there's not a tattoo. It's just some bumbling assistance. And it lasted for like, I don't know, something like eight episodes. Um, it was rebooted again by the Bloomhouse, you know, they make cheap horror movies, right? Bloomhouse horror movies uh, as a as a prequel. So there's a younger actor playing Mr. Rourke. I did not watch this. This was in 2020. So it was like a, and it's a complete horror movie. So all of the fantasies are horrors. Um, and then of course, uh, now, just just a year ago in 2021, as of this show's broadcasting or the show's recording, rather, uh, it was made into a, a TV show on Fox where the conceit is that Mr. Rourke had a niece and she's now running Fantasy Island. And it went for one season and it's been renewed. So I guess it it got some ratings and it was popular enough. 
I don't know if it will last. We'll talk about why I think that. Um, but obviously there's other shows that, you know, have continued this anthology kind of thing, but nothing quite like the combination. I love Boat Twilight. I mean, obviously we have Black Mirror and things like that, but they're not like the Fantasy Island in the sense of like a, you know, a core cast that has guest stars come in. Um, I guess this one on, you know, these this one on Fox TV is that way. So that's the history, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should go into personal histories. I'll just be real quick. There's not much to my personal history. I do remember that I probably watched this on Saturday nights if I wasn't doing anything else. Uh, when it moved to Monday night, there's no way I could have watched it because I had school at six in the morning because I was on the swim team. Uh, so I could never have stayed up that late. Um, and I definitely remember watching it in syndication like a lot. Um, my wife actually remembered this really fondly and she actually remembered more of the show than I did. So I will say that my evaluation, just to give a peek into it, um, you know, when I think back to the Twilight Zone, I, I mean, I could probably do this to you too. I could say like name five Twilight Zone plots and you could do it without any problem whatsoever. I could name 10. Yeah. Yeah. I could name 10 or 20, right? You, right. They're so memorable. These stories and, you know, probably I watched it more because let's face it, it's just a much better show. Yeah, but it's great. It's when one I of think the best back, written when I, shows ever. Right. right. And it's yeah. it was so groundbreaking in these. It's like literature. Right. I mean, these yeah. these great twisted stories. Um, but when I think back to, to Twilight Zone, I can remember all of them. I can remember a few Outer Limits. I can remember a few Alfred Hitchcocks. Not as many of those as Twilight Zone, obviously. But when I thought back to Fantasy Island, all I could remember were the Rourke and tattoo things. Yeah. I couldn't remember any of the stories. Which is um, weird because I mean, they all repeated like 10 times. Yeah, but that story. just goes to show you how unmemorable they were. You know, yeah. it's like, I mean, I might have, you know, Barb mentioned one where there's this haunted house one and there's this guy with a dog face. We we, we didn't watch that because <laughs> I was like, fucking hey, that would have been awesome because there are some awesome things here, which we will. There's some good to this because it gets so fucking batshit crazy. Yeah. Um, and I love that. But all I remembered was, you know, I'm your host, Mr. Rourke, you know, and smiles, everyone smiles and to plane to plane. And this woman is a very sad because of this. You know, I remember all the opening shit with Mr. Rourke and tattoo. That was so iconic to me. It was emblazoned in my mind. But I honestly couldn't remember any of the stories, you know, so revisiting this, um, you know, watching it again, I was like, oh, OK, you know, this is this is I vaguely remember this, you know. I vaguely remember that. So I definitely, uh, you know, catching up to it again was interesting. One yep. other thing I should mention real quick um, is as a kid, you know, I, I would be, my parents were divorced and my dad would take us every other weekend and we'd do something kind of interesting. And my sister always wanted to go to amusement parks and Disneyland. I always hated rides. I'm a big chicken. I never wanted to go on any of it, but my dad would like take me to the natural history museum in LA, right? Or he would take, at one time he took us to the LA Arboretum. And of course, I remember walking around and actually seeing this cottage where, you know, the plane and that was kind of cool. And you could definitely tell some of it was filmed in there. And I wouldn't doubt that maybe that even that shot might have been filmed there because it's, you know, it's surrounded by Los Angeles. Right. So, you know, it's like it's pretty big. But that part with the with the, you know, with the cottage is not deeply into the Arboretum. It's like, you know, it, I could see how that could be or it could could have been filmed on a studio lot because a lot of that was. But that, of course, you know, that famous cottage was filmed there. And I think they filmed some of the other stuff there, too, because it does look kind of tropical because it has like the whole idea of the Arboretum is they bring in these plants and stuff. 
so that's my background. That's about it that I all I can think of, really. Yeah, I did watch it, um, you know, when it was originally broadcast on occasion. So as you mentioned, it was uh, broadcast at 10 p.m. on Saturday nights, uh, right after uh, The Love Boat, which was uh, obviously on at 9 on, on ABC. Um, my, uh, my mother in particular watched The Love Boat and then occasionally would watch Fantasy Island. I don't think she was an ardent fan, but it was on. I remember seeing it. Like you, I don't necessarily remember particular uh, plots. Um, I remember the the never-ending uh, revolving door of guest stars, which we will definitely get into in our evaluation shortly. Um, but yeah, I watched it. I thought it was weird. All the horror elements were like, um, I just remember emotionally reacting to it. Like, oh, this is a weird show. This is a dark show. Um, I, there was There were comedic elements, particularly in the beginning, as you alluded to. Um, but for the most part, I remember it as kind of being like a, like a horror movie kind of vibe is what I remember it mostly being as. And I, I didn't really watch it that often. I think in syndication, I watched it more, but again, I was never a huge fan. I of course understood the, you know, the conceit of it and understood the kind of, um, you know, the guest star thing and all that. Um, but definitely watched the love boat a lot more, um, than, than fantasy Island. So it's interesting that we picked. Fancy Island first on CFX versus The Love Boat, which inevitably we'll get to. So I it was a crazy and dark show, and I remember that aspect as well. So, okay, let's talk about uh, something here, very, very important, which is by popular demand, not just requests, by demand from our fan base, we have another reenactment theater. Now, this reenactment theater is a little bit different than the Happy Days one in the sense that we're not necessarily trying to uh, correct uh, something that's wrong, but more remind our listeners here who are, are you know, following us along going, yeah, I kind of remember Fantasy Island. Yeah, it's kind of vague. Yeah, maybe I watched this, that, and the other. We want to remind people of the setup. We want to remind people of the characters of uh, Mr. Rourke and, uh, and Tattoo and the rest. But we, and the whole guest star uh, conceit, which we've been talking about, but some of the guest stars uh, that they've had on Fancy Island, while interesting, are not as interesting to CFX and not as interesting to us and our fans. And so we wanted to right that particular wrong. And so uh, without further ado, we present you here on episode 23, Reenactment Theater, Fantasy Island, go.
too. Why do you have a guitar? And what is that ridiculous outfit you are wearing? I thought that now is the time to launch my new career as an art star, boss. Driving all the ladies crazy with desire. The only thing you should worry about driving is your miniature car. There have been many complaints about your drunken behavior and careless operation of your vehicle tattoo. Not to mention the tasteless bumper sticker. Sex instructor, first lesson free. I taste great, boss. Smiles, everyone. Smiles. <laughs> boss, who's the bubbly blonde lady with the ball haircut? Yes, tattoo. That is Tony Tenille. She is a former lounge singer who married the dead-eyed keyboard player from her band. Is that the doc with the captain's hat, boss? Yes, that is the keyboard player tattoo. His name is Daryl Dragon. The two of them went on to get a record deal where they achieved inexplicable success with some of the very worst songs ever recorded. Their albums are used as a punishment in French prisons, boss. But they're so successful. Why do they look so unhappy? Indeed, Tattoo. For they harbor a very dark secret. Despite their 70s middle-aged sexy album covers and image, they are trapped in a loveless and fashionless marriage, Tattoo. And they have resorted to the most degrading and vile work available in hopes of reviving their flagging fortunes. Porno, boss? Tattoo, no. Variety shows, naturally. And, of course, appearances on bottom barrel Aaron Spelling shows like this one. Truly sad. What is her fantasy, boss? Her fantasy is to have an affair with anyone who can help resuscitate her career before her looks completely evaporate. My services are always available. She'll be so thrilled to hear that tattoo. Where is the keyboard player's fantasy, boss? His fantasy is to be a spectator to all of the sexy time action, wearing nothing but his captain's hat. Who's the ghost that Rockabilly passed getting off the plane, boss? Ah, uh, that's Neil DeRogo, the guitarist and husband of the great Pat Benatar. The husband of Pat Benatar? Seems like he's already living a fantasy, boss. Why is he here? Yes, he has always carried a deep resentment that his wife was the rock star, adored by fans, basking in the warm glow of the spotlight and the steam from piers. His fantasy is that he get equal billing and credit as Miss Benatar, perhaps with his star, even eclipsing her own. Crazy, boss. She's a singular talent, and there are thousands of better guitarists out there than him. Be that as it may, Tattoo, Mr. Giraldo might learn that the fame, fortune, and the recognition he craves comes at a deadly price. Who is that fat, drunk loser, boss? That Tattoo is one of the most notorious rock stars in the world. Elvis Presley? No, Tattoo. That is Mr. Vince Neal of the world-famous Motley Crue. But just as with Mr. Presley, 
His destiny is to also die on the toilet while taking a dump. I know him, boss. I bet I know his fantasy. He has to go back in time and not kill his friend and maim two innocent people while driving drunk. No, Tattoo? Oh, I have to go back in time and find a cure for the cancer that killed his young daughter. Again, no, Tattoo. Mr. Neal's fantasy is to host the ultimate stripper contest. Miss Big Boobs, Las Vegas. A true gem of humanity. Indeed, Tattoo. Mr. Neal may be in for an unexpected surprise. And find out that the biggest boobs in Las Vegas are his very own. <laughs> there you go. All now, right. I got to point out a few things here. First, um, you can evaluate uh, my tattoo impression against Peter Dinklage, who you heard in the opening uh, uh, montages uh, his overview of uh, Fantasy Island, and you, you, the listeners can decide who does a better job. Hint, it's probably not me. Uh, second, uh, the uh, sex instructor first lesson free that Tattoo talks about in this skit is what he had on his door on the set of the James Bond movie that Slip was talking about earlier. So that's why I didn't want to spoil that uh, marvelous uh, surprise. We're, see, we're doing the same thing here at CFX that the show did, where we bring back Yes. The same guest stars, right? So you yes. saw some of those. And ironically, Tony Tennille was on the show, on the real show, more than once. Like four um, or five times. In yeah. Fact. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So hope you enjoyed that. Uh, well, at least a few people probably will. So uh, let's talk about evaluations. Uh, I'll go here. So strap in. This is going to be kind of the bulk of the of the show, our evaluations. Um I had mentioned in the Happy Days episode how I believe Gary Marshall and all the shows he foisted upon the public made our country dumber. And I, f- I firmly believe that. But I think Aaron Spelling is equally, if not more guilty than this, because these shows are dumb as shit. They really are. They're not. There's no substance to any of them. There's some goofs in them. There's some funny things in them. But it's really just the same um, You know, tired themes again and again and again. As you mentioned um, earlier, the, the premise of the show was like a joke out of exasperation that Aaron Spelling and what, uh, his partner there were trying to get made. Um, it's the, you know, there's a lot of uh, influences on it. You mentioned some of the uh, monkey's paw type things, the, the Twilight Zone-esque shows. Another one was Westworld, right, uh, where people could go and have fantasy somewhere, you know, in, in Westworld, right? Um, which was on. Yeah, it's actually kind of almost a ripoff of that. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think of Westworld, but it's so like that. I mean, obviously, Westworld gets a lot darker and it's robots. Yeah. You know, and they wrote, you know, the, the, obviously the uh, Yul Brenner robot going haywire, but it's got, you know, it's got like Greco Roman world and medieval world. And there's so right. much of that in Fantasy Island where they go back to medieval times or the old West. There are many episodes like that. So it's very influenced by that. And that was a, a hit movie at the time they were creating this, yeah, you know, a you'll, few years, just a few years yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Island idea is not new either. Right. Of course, Gilligan's Island, which, you know, we'll get to at some point played on Island themes for mostly pathetic comedy, but the, 
islands were have been a island and island culture were a subject of fascination um, for a long time. And people, obviously, uh, starting with the stories of Darwin right on the Galapagos Islands, Captain Cook, um, you know, and all those sorts of stories and the discovery, in fact, of uh, the Hawaiian Islands and things like that. Earlier in the late 18th or uh, early 20th century, uh, you know, Paul Gauguin and, uh, you know, Tahiti and, and the art that he represented there. Um, but it started really started picking up uh, street, the, the idea of island stuff and island fantasy, I, I think, really started picking up steam in the mainstream um, in the American psyche after World War II, where a lot of soldiers um, were stationed in the Pacific and had stories of the islands. Yeah, definitely. Stuff, Absolutely. So. Yeah, that was the that was huge. Um, am I including my own grandfather who was in the Pacific and in islands like around and near um, closer to the Philippines, but not quite in the middle of the South Pacific, but uh, certainly many thousands of U.S. soldiers were scattered all across the Pacific. My uh, my father, in fact, was stationed in the military in Hawaii um, when he was in the Navy. So um, the uh, and the idea of it becoming a, a Hawaii, in fact, becoming a, a vacation destination in particular, um, Hawaii becoming a state in the late 50s, I think, 1959, in fact. Um, and other TV shows were already capitalizing on this idea as a vacation destination, maybe um, most uh, particularly for this audience, the Brady's and their infamous Tiki episode where they went on a vacation to Hawaii and were getting haunted by a curse, which just on the surface of describing the, the theme of that episode, it sounds about right. Pretty stupid. Um, Fantasy Island capitalized on, you know, the same getting up, as you said, the small plane in an exotic tropical locale in Burbank. People dressed in the uh, uniform of the Hawaiian islands and stuff like that with the drinks and with the umbrellas and the lays and the, and the music tropes, the hula, you know, music that uh, was played in the background, even on our reenactment, which uh, as an aside was actually from the show. So we didn't uh, make that. You know, I have to say, I really love the music on the show. It reminds yeah. me of original series Star Trek. You know, it's got that same kind of exotic sweeping you know, I think the music is really well done. Yeah, they had in those days would pay professional composers to right. um, make music. I don't have the gentleman's name, but I think there was one guy who did most of the show. Um, about the lays getting off the island, just one kind of maybe amusing story. Uh, my family went on the, uh, you know, traditional Hawaiian vacation. I think when I was 11, 10 or 11, um, to all the usual tourist uh, trappy places. But uh I had identified a shirt that I wanted as a souvenir and it was, um, I saw in one of the shops along, you know, Waikiki or whatever. And it said, I got laid in Hawaii, but the laid oh, was yeah. the ID. And of course I wanted it because I thought it was actually, you know, getting a lay on your head, not actually getting laid as, you know, so right. um, I innocently wanted that. And, uh, and uh, of course my uh, no humor mother would say, said no to that. And the lady who worked at the shop thought it was adorable that some kid, didn't get the sexual context, um, but uh, maybe I did get it. Maybe I did get the yeah, sexual context and I, and I wanted it. Um, grown adults, as we get into these plots, just keep this in mind, people, but grown adults wrote this and grown adults voluntarily watched it. Kids were subjected to it, as has often been the theme of some of the things that we saw uh, going up. So as we get into this, like these plots where you're going, this can't, be real that they could not have written this. 
this did not actually air. They did. Um, they were shown. They did write these. They did produce these. They did record these. They did broadcast these. And people watched it. And kids were subjected to it. Um, you mentioned a little bit about Rourke and who he was. And he, Ricardo Montalban, in the, in the opening, talked about he viewed him as a, a fallen angel who's kind of um, purgatory because he was uh, prideful. Um, but it's yeah, not it exactly sounds like clear. Satan. Yeah, it's so weird that he's you know we know Rourke isn't the devil because the devil actually appears, which we'll right. talk about. But um, but yeah, it's weird. His description is basically a kind of a version of Satan, right? Satan was a fallen angel because of his pride and yeah. hubris, and and and. But I guess Rourke is a less bad fallen angel who gets to purgatory instead of hell. I have no idea. He had a he had to suffer through a a. Uh, a motorhome on the set where he couldn't take a proper dump. That that's was right. His, that's right. That was his purgatory. That was his purgatory. Yep. Um, so, you know, we don't know exactly where Rourke is. Tattoo apparently also had powers um, besides, you know, being a sex maniac. Um, he, th- there's an episode called Instant Millionaire where he goes behind Rourke's back to make a man um, a millionaire for a weekend. Of course, that was Artie Johnson, who's in eight trillion of these. But things go horribly awry. Shocker. Um, and he, the guy who's rich is now targeted by, by bank robbers. That sounds about right. And um, is it hereditary, which doesn't make sense either. Um, Rourke's goddaughter, who makes an appearance. This is not the same goddaughter who's played by uh, Wendy Shaw. Another uh, goddaughter character, uh, played by Ann Jillian, if you remember her. Oh, yeah. Um, wants her, wants uh, Rourke to remove her powers so she can marry an unsuspecting fiancé, um, which is the plot of Bewitched. So there you go, right? Mm. Except she doesn't lose her powers. Uh, the character Samantha just agrees not to use them, but then does to comic effect, um, and much to um, Paul Lynn's amusement. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk about the plot, shall we, Slip? Yeah, sounds good. <clears throat> the, the, the plots of this show are completely fucking insane. And they cover every trope you can imagine that you have in your head from pretty much any type of show that's ever been on TV. And some of the categories uh, that I'm putting these plots in are my own categories. Some of them I stole directly from a TV site or a website rather called TV tropes. Um, And I'll try to call out um, which ones are which, but just again, kind of giving them credit in advance uh, for those. Um, You had things like absent-minded professor uh, plots. You had many, many adoption plots where um, adopted kids wanted to meet their real parents, where you had um, how their adopted parents you know, uh, came to their original parents, uh, died and wanted to know them or adopted parents, um, told them something that, you know, trying to hide their true identity. And they were like, you know, kings and queens and, you know, all that kind of usual shit. Um, There's one where a woman tries to find her biological father to give her away at her wedding. Um, You get the idea. Um, There's one starring Loretta Lynn where um, she plays a waitress Want to guess the waitress's the character's name? Slip. Uh, is it Flo? No, that's a good one. Flo is actually on the show. We'll talk about that. But Loretta uh, is the character's uh, name. Oh, Loretta. Yeah, 
Oh, it's one of those. <laughs> one of those, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wants to impress uh, the daughter she gave up for adoption by uh, becoming a wealthy heiress, and the daughter's played by Heather Locklear. There you go. Um, anyway, and then you have lots of, like, wanting to meet the children she gave up sort of thing. Then you had all the usual monkey's paw things you talked about, which is, and you thought it was a game, but it's actually for real now. You wanted to do, um, you wanted to be hunted uh, because you thought you were the ultimate survivalist. Well, you're getting hunted for real, and if you die, you're going to die for real. Um, right. We should mention that Rourke, all, one of the, uh, when the fantasies are darker, but even when they're not, uh, one of the show's constant uh, things that it always did was Rourke always says, once the fantasy is put into motion, I yeah. can't help, which of course is untrue right. because there are many examples, which I'll talk about one, uh, where he gets involved, right? Yeah. So, but but there's always that that element or, you know, there's one where this guy, his fantasy, this is so stupid because it's basically the plot of the, of the old uh, pulp uh, uh, fantasy story called She, right? Yeah. It was a sci-fi movie where the guy wants to be on an island of lost women. That's yeah. his fantasy. And it yeah. just happens to be one next door, right? To Fantasy Island, and he and Rourke can take him there, but he doesn't have any jurisdiction there. Well, my so, wife would be on that island because she's constantly getting lost because she has a horrible <laughs> sense of direction. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. That's like a tattoo joke, dude. Yeah, you totally, I know. I know. <laughs> you should do that in your tattoo voice. It's all right. <laughs> you don't have to. But lost. anyway, yeah. Yeah. My wife, how are you getting lost? <laughs> dude, dude, awesome. So yeah, so yeah, there's always that. I just wanted to bring that up when you mentioned yeah. the whole be careful what you wish for kind of spin that these all have, right? Yep. And and then there's also the other twist on that, which is, you know, all sorts of crazy shit happens. They're whisked uh, back to safety by Rourke. Um, and they're all like, did that happen? Was that a dream? Was that real? And, you know, a lot of, uh, Rourke saying, oh, what do you think? You know, that kind of, that kind of crap. Um, you have benevolent mage ruler, which is definitely a category from that, uh, TV tropes, uh, where, you know, Rourke is saying, I am the God of this Island. People would come, you know, and say, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And he'd say, no, no, I'm the law here, including one episode that I actually watched. I just got to mention it where, this was a Tony Tennille one where she plays a woman in a, in a wheelchair who has a pen pal who's in prison. Um, and she doesn't know he's in prison, I don't think. And their fantasy, her fantasy, someone brings her to the island because she's depressed because her pen pal stopped writing her. And the, the pen pal, the guy who was in prison, was in a military prison in Japan. And uh, the way the work gets him to the island is they are going to transport him to Leavenworth from Japan. Okay, so let's just take a step back. Japan is in, well, in Asia, where Japan is. Leavenworth is in the middle of the U.S. in, in Kansas. So they're going to transport this prisoner. How are they going to do this? Are they going to put him on a, a, a jet that flies from, say, Japan to L.A.? And then, or no, they're going to put him on a single-engine prop plane and fly him from Japan over Fantasy Island where the plane runs into mysterious trouble, lands on Fantasy Island, so they get this prisoner there. So you're going to fly a prop plane with a range of like, what, 200 miles maybe from Japan to the U.S. Uh, with a dangerous prisoner on it. And the best part about it is the plane says something like dangerous prison, dangerous prisoner transport on this one engine prop plane that lands on Fantasy Island. 
That is insane. But what's even more insane is a war prisoner in Japan. What year are we in? Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ, this is like the late 70s. There's no war with Japan. I know. I know. For 30 plus years. And there would be no prisoner in Japan. for That would have all been ironed out in 1945. Well, so I think what it, I war? Think, I don't know. I think he was a military prisoner, they said. So he could have been on like a military base. He could have done some, you know, bad stuff in Osaka. And right. then, you know, was in prison there. Which you know is unfortunately not unprecedented, but the 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 uh, the idea that they're going to fly from Japan to the U.S. on a prop plane over Fantasy Island, which by the way, as you pointed out, is supposed to be near French Guiana, which is right near South America, right? right. Like right. So th there's nowhere, no way, no how the the route of this plane is going anywhere near Fantasy Island. It's the dumbest fucking thing in the world. But of course, he has to land on Fantasy Island. Um, with uh, you know his his uh, you know almost like a slim Whitman kind of uh, uh, character you know as his uh, uh, with the guy the bounty hunter guy who's taking oh jeez yeah it was really it was really bad but yeah it makes no sense the, the the funny thing is is the guy's like you know I'm not letting my prisoner go he's in like the the uh, hand and leg chains and all that and Rourke's just like I am the law on this island you'll let him go. Um, and so run around the island, which, by the way, if he's a dangerous kind of like uh, sexual predator, he's unleashing on the island uh, work is to let Tony Tennille get some. So you had lots of things around, you know, somebody winning the big game, um, handicapped people who could walk again, lots of detective stories, including several with Don Knotts. You have evil twin plots. You have exact word tropes where it's just like somebody says, you know, I want to be, you know, uh, you know, a rich, uh, you know, royal uh, chic uh, with a harem. And and uh, Rourke says, OK, you get what you want. And then, of course, somebody's trying to assassinate uh, that chic. Uh, chic was played by Artie Johnson, naturally. You have yeah. your, your, your fish out of water uh, kind of stuff going back in time. King Arthur, Don Juan, Jack the Ripper is one where uh, some woman uh, wants to investigate that and she's about to be uh, hacked by Jack the Ripper and work again, intervenes and saves her despite saying. Uh, right. That That's one know. of the most, uh, one of the prime examples of him intervening. And I'll yeah. have more to say about that one too. Okay. We'll get into that. You have freaky Friday ones where, you know, uh, people switch roles, uh, including one with Catherine Hellman and, uh, and Vic Tabak swapping bodies and not in the way <laughs> that anybody wants to think about. Yeah. Um, you have lots of magic ones where, you know, everything is magical on the island. The writers were just like, we're just going to phone this one in this week. You have genie in the bottles. You have ghosts. You have a, about seven or eight episodes of hunting the most dangerous game. Or Dude, this is, I, I can't believe there's only seven or eight. Because it seemed like every fucking one plot I looked at, and, and I watched a couple of these. I actually yeah. watched two of these because they're so hard not to miss the most dangerous game. Either I want to be hunted by by people, or I want to hunt the ant this animal, or I want to hunt a person. There's one where they even want to hunt Mr. Rourke. You yeah. know, it's just crazy. Yeah, lot, lots of hunting. Um yeah, I, you may be right. There may be more than I. I think I counted eight at one point. Maybe I just which gave is up. still a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like to use that same plot over and over again because obviously it's easy because you have the island. Yeah, right. Even the game show one, which I'm going to talk about, has that element in one of the sub stories because that one's like 
that one's like a game show that frames the episode, but then there's three or four mini stories in that. And one of them is they're hunted. Yeah. Basically. Yep. Hungry like the wolf uh, uh, sort of plots. Yes. Yes. Uh, lo- lo- lost love refound is pretty much half the episodes and a hundred percent of the ones on love boat. Obviously you have your princess uh, for a day plots. You have your, she cleans up nicely plots where some, you know, beautiful hot woman was wearing some glasses and then they decide to make her up and they take the glasses off and pull down her hair and she's Phyllis Davis or, you know, somebody like that. Um, you have uh, plots that are the producer's uh, plot where they have to um, lose money on something, uh, um, you know, because they're going to be in trouble because they're running some scam. That's part of the fantasy that's in there. All sorts of re- reformed horror uh, plot lines where you have former call girls or strippers or sex workers who are trying to escape their, um, you know, lot in life. You have one where a prostitute uh, is played by uh, Melinda Cooley from the A-Team, if you remember her, who's a prostitute who wants a normal love life. Uh, Oh, yeah. You know, lots of that kind of stuff. There's one about um, a bunch of prostitutes uh, who are trying to go to the wedding of their former madam played by Polly Bergen. You were mentioning flow. There you go. Oh yeah. Um, and some of the prostitutes were Shelly Smith. And uh, I think she was on uh, Charlie's angels, Lauren Tweez, who is the notorious uh, Coke aficionado from the love boat, Julie and Randy Oaks, who was on chips, um, who was, you know, a pretty woman there. You have lots of uh, revenge fantasies, you have roller derby ones, which, of course, this is the 70s. You're going to have roller derby. Yeah. Um, you're going to have uh, Save My Relationship, uh, you know, episodes where marriage is on the rocks. We're going to go to Fantasy Island um, where they live out the Rupert Holmes, uh, you know, plot from Pini Colada we talked about right, in the last episode right. uh, or various themes on that. Uh, you know, you have lots of sexy time ones. Um the one I mentioned where, uh, well, I said, you know, Artie Johnson uh, plays a teacher who wants to be uh, have a harem, but he winds up uh, as a sheik who's uh, going to be assassinated. We have one uh, starring his kind of almost doppelganger, uh, Paul Williams, um, who we will be uh, talking about in future episodes. But uh, he plays a computer engineer who uh, has a fantasy about living a night in a harem and things go wrong. Imagine that. Um we have Islands of Lost Women. You you mentioned um, uh, a guy who wants to a sailor. Uh, maybe it's uh, Brandy's boyfriend from the last episode, but uh, wants to spend the weekend on a mythical island with nothing but beautiful women. That doesn't go well. You have one where Tattoo actually asks uh, Rourke um, to grant him the fantasy of being a love god to many beautiful native women, um, which wouldn't that be like this basic sexual harassment as the employer on the island, but you know, maybe putting that aside that doesn't. And, and by the way, Rourke, of of course, exact words him and takes it literally. And that, that doesn't go well for tattoo. You have one that you're going to talk about called the victim. I will leave that one to you. It may be the most amazing, 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 amazing episode in the whole history of the show. Yeah. We'll talk about that in some detail because we both uh, are pretty much blown away by this. You have lots of ones with uh, Vic Tabak and like, Chasing Women, which is kind of gross. Um, Barbie Benton is in 800 episodes. Barbie, and I'll talk a little bit more her in a minute. Her in a minute. 
Um, you get the idea. Lots of, um, I want a magical formula to make me attractive to women. Um, I want to turn the tables on uh, men who are sexually harassing me and I want to sexually harass them. That was a couple episodes. Uh, you have uh, F Troop wanting to live out his fantasy of being a gigolo so he can be noticed and admired by women. You get the idea. I could go on and on and on and on and on. The last one I want to talk about in this category, though, okay, is I'm just going to read the plot synopsis and let leave this to the, the reader to ponder. The episode is called My Mommy the Swinger. I'm just going to let that sit with you. Oh, My wow. Mommy the Swinger. A single mother named Ellen Ashley, played by Florence Henderson, Mrs. Brady, lives out her fantasy of being a swinger. What do you think about that one? That is crazy. I didn't watch that one. Some homework for you, naturally. Yes. Um, You have a lot of plots of, you know, the little guy makes it big, you know, king for a day, very special episodes, one you're going to talk about uh, with a tattoo um being injured so forth and so on dark secret sort of things um there there's one talk about dark is a a rape victim played by marky post cannot uh, bring herself to tell her husband about it which is sad and horrific and all all around um tori spelling makes an appearance as an actress in one unfortunately oh wow yeah a little girl they didn't they didn't weed her out of the system at that point as being untalented unfortunately but nepotism is a hell of a drug um and then lastly you have just writers on drugs okay (laughs) yes there's just no other way to describe just the crazy ass shit this group of writers uh, came up with you have voodoo episodes you have pirate episodes okay um, the one, yeah, the voodoo epi- one is like, zo- like voodoo zombies. Yeah. Like, like it's crazy. Right. Like I mean, it's like a horror. It's in a rainbow horror. shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You have, uh, a, you know, a, uh, a painter played by Sonny Bono. <laughs> <laughs> shit. Yeah. He's in a couple of them. Yeah. He's in a lot of them who, who, uh, becomes a pirate to win back his wife. Yeah. You have, uh, archeologists hunting for buried treasure. There's a bunch of those. You have um, uh, strippers or hookers from Vegas who want to marry rich dudes. Um, I, I don't know why they need to go to Fancy Island to do that. One of them was Barbie Benton. She, she kind of worked that out, um, as creepy as her uh, um, partner was, by the way. It was Hugh Hefner for a lot of years. Um, you have, let's see, uh, find the missing Dodo episodes. Uh, you have uh, rodeo uh this is one that made me this laugh. I got to read this. When it's called Cowboy, a Texan Brian Kehoe, played by Hugh O'Brien. Who's wants, in a million of them. Yeah, yeah. Wants to be a rodeo star to keep him, his son from discovering that he's actually a rodeo clown. Oh, womp, my womp, God. Womp, womp. Yeah. <laughs> um, this one was funny to me. It's an episode called Pentagram. A TV reporter named Jane Garwood, played by Florence Henderson. Oh, wow. <laughs> Seeks Mr. Rourke's help to find out why her boyfriends keep dying. There you go. We have a couple red button episodes, just red buttons. We have the rock star one you're going to talk about. We have a whole long list of mermaid ones. Um, there is actually four of these, three or four of them. 
The yeah, mermaid. and it's the same actress, right? Yeah. It's Michelle Phillips of yes, the Mamas from, and the Papas. She plays the right. mermaid in all of them. Yeah, that's right. She's like, like a her. recurring character. Yeah, and she was in like uh, one of those nighttime soaps, you know, too for a long time, like uh, Falcon's Crest or, you know, one yeah. of those. Yeah, she became an actress. Yeah, uh, you know, of during sorts. this time. Yeah, yeah. Of sorts. Yeah, also the mother of China Phillips, if you're wondering, for those of you who don't know, um, of uh, dubious fame with the offspring of Brian Wilson. Um, you have another one about <laughs> fucking cavemen that you're going to talk about. Uh, go ahead. You're going to say something. Yeah, there? I'm not going to talk about that one. I don't uh, but you one. watched that one. No, I didn't watch the caveman one. I've, oh, you watched the Planet of the Apes one. Oh, you watched the Bigfoot one. There's a Bigfoot one, yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah, You You have that list to hear. Yeah, I yes. will talk about that okay. one. Okay, so the, yeah. the, the caveman one, I got to read this. It's called One Million BC, not really following the timeline of hominids on the Earth, but, well, yeah, forgive them that. Um, well, you know, I guess potentially if it's really prehistoric. Uh, two women named Mindy Harris and played by Phyllis Davis, her oh, okay. symbols floating around. Uh, Carolyn Taylor want to return to a time of old-fashioned chivalry in men and daintiness in women, of course, which lands them in prehistoric times when they are encountered by Neanderthals. There you go. Um, you have the ventriloquist one, which you are going to talk about. Um, and you have, a, you know, let's see, uh, sailors on ship, or uh, let's see, women, damsels in distress, Here's one, the sailor, a designer named Laura Miles, falls in love with the cursed captain Heinrich von Hortmann of the Flying Dutchman, who must exchange her life for happiness. Uh, the captain is paid, played by Peter Graves. The damsel in the stress is played by, well, of course, Florence Henderson. Um, you have Helen Reddy at, from our last episode, starring as a fashion designer's assistant named Susie Swan, who's fed up with her boss, Jack Hecker, Played by George Maharis, which was the fake character name that uh, George uh, Bluth or Mike, Michael's Bluth son, George Jr. Oh, yeah. Gives as George Maharis on Arrested Development. is actually a guy named George Maharis. Uh, you have the Quizmasters one, which you're going to talk about. Um, you have one, uh, two more left. I'm not making any of these up, people. We have one called The Perfect Gentleman, a rock star named Jimmy Jordan, played by, who would you imagine to be a rock star? How about Paul Williams? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Very talented musician and songwriter. Not really a rock star. Wants to hide from the mob after witnessing a murder, so Rourke disguises him as a butler. <laughs> oh, okay. And then lastly, here you go. A middle-aged widow named Margaret Smith, played by Juliet Prowse, has a fantasy to meet the man of her dreams, who turns out to be, you ready? Her daughter's boyfriend. Of course. This of is course. the 70s after all. So This is the 70s after all. Okay. Did you, did you get all that? Everyone take a deep breath. Those were just some of the plots that people, that were written, produced, people watched. Now, who is in all these gems? And we mentioned Florence Henderson is in a lot of them. And her Brady cohorts were, Marie McCormick was in like six of them. Eve Plum was in a whole bunch of them. Robert Reed was in one I couldn't get through where he plays an actor, a method actor. Dracula, gonna, right? Dracula. And yeah. he, he he really is just the worst actor in the world, I got to say. I, I mean, he can't act at all. And just he's just his crazy, maniacal sort of 
eye dashing around and he's trying to do the, the Dracula thing was not even watchable. You have uh, Burt Convey and a bunch of them, Diana Canova. You may not remember her, but look her up. You'll recognize her. She was a ubiquitous, ubiquitous part of 70s TV. All the Love Boat people, Dr. Bricker was in a bunch of them, Julie. Pat, Pat Klaus was in one who replaced uh, Julie when she had to go to rehab. Uh, Ted Lang, you mentioned, Jill Wheeland. Captain Steubing didn't seem to make an appearance. Happy Days was on a bunch. You had Donnie Most, of course. He was on 8 trillion. Al Molinaro was on a bunch. Uh, apparently has escaped from the bathroom from reenactment theater to, <laughs> to, right. uh, to make an appearance. Scott Bayo, Anson Williams, of course, had to be there. You had Ed Bagley, Lisa Hartman, Marcia Strassman. Remember her? Mrs. Cotter. Oh, yeah. Um, you had MASH people. Uh, Gary Berghoff, Larry Linville, Frank Burns, even Colonel Flagg, Don Knotts, Nancy Walker, Tony Tennille, as we talked about, Barbie Benton, 8,000 episodes she was in playing Barbie Benton, not a talented actress, cute, back in the day, not talented. Uh, Ronnie Cox, remember him? He was in uh, also, I believe he was in Total Recall. Total Recall and uh, He's a villain. Yeah, Robocop as a villain, too, I guess, of sorts. Desi Arnaz Jr., Lucy Arnaz, when they were trying to be actors, um, did not inherit any talent from mom and dad, unfortunately. Uh, Charlie's Angels, you mentioned, including the Angel uh, cast member no one wanted to see, David Doyle. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Ken Berry from F Troop. Rich Little, who was trying to make himself an actor. Richard Dawson, of course. Uh, Artie Johnson was in 8,000 episodes. Uh, Sonny Bono was in 8,000 episodes, unfortunately. Hard to watch, you know. Um, Mission Impossible, uh, Greg Morris was also in. Steve Forrest. Eight is Enough people were all over the place. Ava Gabor (laughs) made her way over from some talk shows to the set. Donna Mills, Don Adams trying to keep his career going. Adrian Barbeau, Gary Collins, John Saxon from um, the... uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and other places. Marianne Mobley, married to Gary Collins, I think. Michelle Phillips, you mentioned. Vic Tabak, by the way. Mel from Mel's Diner on Alice. Jane Meadows. David Cassidy, trying to keep around. Gilligan's Island people, you mentioned. Robert Goulet is a singer who unfortunately made a lot of appearances in 70s TV. Melissa Sue Anderson, all the three name people were on this. She was what, in Little House on a Prairie? Phyllis Davis is in a bunch of them, which I applaud because she just needed to be in more stuff, especially um, how they would use her in these episodes was uh, interesting. You'll talk about from Vegas. She, by the way, she played the secretary in, in the TV show Vegas. Bart Broverman, who is uh, the, the bumbling assistant in Vegas. Annette Funicello, who you're going to talk about. Uh, Roddy McDowell, you already did. Charlene Tilton. Remember her from Dallas? Yep, from Paul Dallas, Williams. Yep. Pamela Sue Martin, another three, you have to add three names. Elaine Joyce, remember her? Yeah, from game shows. Yes. She and we talked there. about her on the game shows. She yes. was like, they they loaned her from Match Game to be on this, I guess. Yep, exactly. Peter Lawford made an appearance as Yeah, he's in the pilot. Yeah. He's actually in the pilot that I'll talk about. Martin Milner, remember what he's from? Oh, no. You, Adam no, I don't remember him. Yeah. He was the, Is he partner, the blonde guy or the yeah, dark the blonde guy. guy. Oh, okay. The blonde, the blonde guy. guy. Yeah. And Jillian, we mentioned Cleavon Little from Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Uh, the great Cleavon Little. Jill St. John. Any comments on her? 
She's in these. Yeah, she's. I'm going to talk about her along with Phyllis Davis because there's one reason to have her on this. Yeah, it's like kind of the same reason as Phyllis Davis. It's like, yep. or maybe Barbie Benton to an extent as well. Um, Jack Elam, remember him? Yes. Um, you, if you don't know who he is, just go look up his picture. You'll start laughing because he plays this kind of bedraggled old West character in every uh, movie. He also is in Cannonball Run as the doctor who's drunk, who's always trying to give people injections. Um, a Cannonball Run and inevitably will be a movie we cover. Sorry, Slip. Uh, you have the Lander sisters, of course. You know who they are, the giggling, um, airheaded, high-voiced uh, sisters who were in everything in the 70s. Dick Smothers. I'm not going to say anything. Uh, <laughs> that is not a porn name, by the way. That was actually yeah. his name. Um, Dick Smothers. I, I don't have my uh, my rim shot, sorry. Uh, Linda Blair, of course. Vicki Lawrence, naturally. Mentioned Helen Reddy. Aaron Gray from uh, Silver Spoons. Gene Rayburn, who you will talk about. Tanya Roberts, right. who uh, I guess when they couldn't get Barbie Benton, they called up Tanya Yeah, exactly. Roberts. Same Same deal. Yeah, uh, Lydia Cornell, remember her? Yes. Yeah, Too, too close, close for, for comfort. comfort. That's right. Uh, Linda Goodfriend. We From talked Happy about her. Days. The Happy yep. Days episode, Jenny Piccolo, right? Um, Jenny Lee Harrison, remember her? The Three's Company, Three's that's Company. right. They keep coming back. Connie Stevens, you'll, you know her from the 70s. Heather Locklear, before she was the, uh, you know, accoutrement of many a washed up rock star. Sherman Helmsley uh, from the Jeffersons. I mentioned Randy Oaks. Our man from uh, the commercials last uh, uh, episode, Lou Rawls. Wow. Who, when he's not uh, singing about, uh, you know, Budweiser, made his way over to uh, the set here. Marky Post, I mentioned. LeVar Burton uh, played in an episode where he played the son of Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. In a very late episode. Now, this was after Roots, so he was already pretty well known, obviously, for, for being in Roots. But this is obviously before Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, Donna Pescal, you know, made oh, hey. way over from... We mentioned her in the Happy Days episode. We did. Michael Lembeck from, uh, you may m- remember him, from uh, uh, One Day at a Time. I think he played the uh, husband of uh, uh, the often drug-using Mackenzie Phillips. Uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, yeah. Children out there, that's actually a dude. He was a singer. Uh, Oh, by the way, in addition to the Ice Castles soundtrack, in addition to the Captain and Tennille garbage that we talked about last episode, my mom also had Engelbert Humperdinck. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's in that same wheelhouse. Absolutely. That tells you everything you need to do there. Tanya Tucker, who played a country star in Fantasy Island, Early episodes, early uh, career stuff from Gina Davis, who obviously went on to Better Things. Charo, who never went on to Better Things and <laughs> just kind of went on a revolving circuit between The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Tom Jones, trying to expand beyond uh, whatever Tom Jones did. Uh, and then Adam West, naturally, because you have to have Adam West. So, sorry, that was a long list, but I, I sent all those people to make a point, which was, um, these are the people who uh, start on the show and they fall into a few categories with a couple of exceptions, of course. You have washed up celebrities who would basically take any job they could in order to hang around long enough so they could get the next gig um, to turn around their, you know, flagging fortunes. Sometimes it worked, you know, I guess with LeVar Burton and Gina Davis, they obviously went on to much bigger and better things. 
You had existing celebrities on current shows who were kind of doing what I call spelling service, right? Who, you know, just like go on to the other Aaron Spelling shows to, uh, you know, or network service if they were on the same network, trying to expand their appeal uh, beyond the base and not be typecast. And you had wannabe celebrities in an era before social media, um, not quite actresses or musicians, uh, you know, or musicians trying to become actors or actors trying to pretend they're musicians. You get it. The roll call is uh, basically the same people who just, of course, went on to the Love Boat Cruise the next week. And the one thing I wanted to say is it's easy to, and you may think and expect that we're going to just completely harsh on all these people um, for being on these shows, but I'm not going to actually do that because there weren't that many jobs and vehicles for people who weren't on network shows or movie stars. There weren't a thousand cable channels. There weren't 10,000 shows on, you know, Netflix or Prime. It's just movies and TVs. And if you weren't like a movie level actor, like Turd Ferguson or something, um, or Sally Field, or there weren't many places that you could go. There was a lot of, uh, your options were pretty limited. There weren't that many ways for Artie Johnson or Vic Tabak or former Brady's to make a living, you know. And after um, Fantasy Island or Match Games, you know, there was basically, it was basically dinner theater time. That was your, your final stop on the circuit, which is where Bob Crane ended, uh, literally and figuratively, right, um, <laughs> so to speak. So but really, by the way, it wasn't until the 80s and beyond that the larger economic models of former TV stars came into fruition where you could write books. Like uh, when Slip and I were in college, the uh, Greg Brady wrote a book that became pretty popular and kind of got people back into that. We've talked about that. Um, the, uh, the circuit, the convention circuit where people would pay you $10 to say, you know, the plane, the plane, the plane, or, you know, repeat the Damone's five-step plans as we talked about in the, uh, in the fast times episode, um, for the musicians, you know, your Charles, your Robert Goulet, your Engelberts, your Paul Williams, um, the, the network of casino gigs and state fair cannot type things didn't really exist to the same degree. Right. So um, once their records stopped selling and you weren't Led Zeppelin or Earth, Wind and Fire or whatever, there weren't any places to extract money out of people for sort of knowing who you are. Um, you know, and Charo, there's a limited appeal on her gigs anyway. Although uh, I was watching the, um, the Elvis movie, the, the, the new Elvis movie, uh, which I'm maybe we cover at some point, and they were showing a bunch of, recreating a bunch of the billboards from Vegas of that time. And Charo's all over the place. You know, she was a thing. So these were like, uh, some of these people like Barbie Benton were sort of like the pre-Paris Hilton Kardashian celebutard types um, who were just, you know, she was mostly famous for being naked in Playboy and having to uh, deal with Hugh Hefner. So um, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I should, I, should, I want to mention something about this because you bring this up. And this is kind of a zeitgeisty thing. I think there were a few things we could have included in the zeitgeist, like your whole thing about... Um, you know, the tourism to Hawaii kind of being leading up to this kind of island fetishism thing. Um, but also this, right? So the celebrity culture, I think it's one thing I forgot to mention is one thing I think that influenced this show and Love Boat were the disaster movies that were around at the time. You had like, um, right, you had the Towering Inferno, you had the Poseidon Adventure, you had the airport movies, um, and all of them brought back old actors like Helen Hayes actually won. And, uh, you know, she was like a, a silent film actress, essentially, and maybe a little bit in the 30s. And she actually came back in 1970 and won an Oscar for her role. 
uh, in airport, the original airport. And then, you know, there was obviously Murder on the Orient Express as well. So there's all these movies that would get these ensemble casts and they would bring out these old crusty Hollywood stars. Like I mentioned, Ray Milland was on an episode on, on this, right? You, you mentioned a bunch in your list that were really old actors. And I think that this was influenced by those movies as well. It was kind of a thing in the 70s to go, well, we have this stable of stars, right? What do yeah. we do with them? And we can make more money off of them. Like we have this hit show, Happy Days. Let's cross over and bring over, you know, a minor character like Donnie Most on there. And that way we kind of cross pollinate our shows and get like, you know, get viewers in. And it network was a whole strategy. That's what I yeah. Call it, right? yeah. Yeah. You called it network service. That's totally what it is. And Love yeah. Boat, you know, uh, was another one that did that. So yeah. that was kind of a formula for making more money off of these people. Cause I don't know how much they made for these episodes, but I doubt it was that much. Probably and they kept coming much. back. Yeah. They kept bringing back the same people. You know? Yeah. And, so. and, and Florence Henderson's case of ever more bizarre plots. And to your point, this is exactly right. They took this group of, you know, quote unquote celebrities and they put them in stuff like circuses, circus of the network stars. They put them in like, you know, uh, decathlon type things, which were very popular, obviously, in the 70s after, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what's uh, his name now, her name now, uh, the uh, decathlon, 1976 winner who was uh, Bruce Jenner Bruce, slash Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner. I couldn't remember. Yeah, Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. Yes. Formerly Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, um that was that was a huge deal in culture uh, when you know she won that, and lots of the Capilon type activities on TV and the Battle of the Network Stars were those sort of like track and fieldy events. Circus of the Network Stars were all these same exact people all competing um, against one another in network service type uh, type thing. So, all right, evaluation. On the surface, I think it'd be pretty easy just to follow along this argument and to say, that go short here. This is a horrible show. It's stupid. The plots are crazy. It's a celebration of these ridiculous plot lines, these wash-up celebrities, very questionable acting. The conceit of the show, perhaps from its inception, was a joke. Um, never any repeats of the same themes, the same inevitable denouements again and again and again. And... If we're going to, you know, part of our job here is to base our evaluations on 30 years from now, are people going to watch this and, and be into this? And if not, you know, you'd go short. And I, and I think that just on the surface, there is a very strong argument for just going extremely short. No one is going to rediscover this show and say there's greatness here, um, maybe outside of uh, Phyllis Davis. So um, mm. It's really easy to uh, just go short in there, but I, I want to present a small counter argument here and tell me what you think. All right. The influence of the show is not going to inspire any great future pieces of art. The, re the reenactment theater um, maybe is accepted, which I think will be discovered by future generations as something to be celebrated. But we'll have to see on that. But this show was widely watched by a generation uh, of young people, maybe quasi child abuse. And uh, many of those people uh, have gone on to do worthwhile things, um, perhaps. Um, beyond the various reboots of this franchise, I don't think it's much of a leap from Fantasy Island to various weird shit, ha weird shit happening on some island plots that are in the, you know, saturated the culture like uh, go, uh, um, you know, from a Job from Arrested Development's Fuck Island joke. Um, 
so you yeah, got and there's all also that, like lost lost and all that exactly. was massive and it and it, it even though it's a completely different kind of scenario and yep. different story the whole idea of weird shit unexplainable shit on the island is definitely gotta have some little influence for sure you know from fantasy yeah. island yeah exactly Okay, so all that being said, which is a lot, I think if you view it from the right angle, the show is actually quite subversive. Um, beyond the celebrity parade and laughable conceits and tropes and, you know, I want to win the big game, be a rich millionaire, mermaid. Um, there's a very edgy, subversive strain of our society hidden in plain primetime sight, right? So you had somewhat normalization of prostitutes and sex workers. Interesting. You had the yeah, idea of being a, a ghostbuster. There's several episodes where people were trying, and one of them is called Ghost Breaker. This is in the late 70s. <laughs> yeah, Ghost Breakers. Just Ghost Breaker. Say, yeah, that's that's got uh, Ken Berry and Annette Funicello in it. Yeah. Uh, in a, you know, they were in other episodes, but that's one with them. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, seeing that in some of the clips. Exactly. You had swinging and non-traditional relationships. Like, uh, hey, my, my ideal man is uh, my daughter's boyfriend. <laughs> You had the the plots of many uh, things like uh, Dances with Wolves, Ghostbusters, all prefigured uh, here in in um, Fantasy Island. And so Bigfoot, you get it, all of it. So why many of these are certainly a drug-fueled musing of staff writers who had no obvious constraint on what they were putting out there or whatever crazy-ass idea they could come up with, which must have been kind of cool as a writer because you could just show up and whatever you know drugs from your weekend you're just like how about bigfoot meets a pirate and sunny bono is gonna battle Artie johnson on the deck and florence henderson is gonna you know come in and kick their asses or yeah, whatever it is but you know in an era where other popular shows were with you know a dude living with two girls or people banging on cruise ships and you know the the zaniness of this show the ridiculous zaniness of this show hidden right away right there on prime time maybe of interest to future historians who are like, this show was kind of like the first of the signal, the, the tipping point. It's just like this crazy ass era of TV that we live in now. There is something maybe there, but maybe that's giving the show too much credit. So I am going to go short just because I have to, but I think there could be an argument for going a little bit long. Um, so there you go. I'll turn it over to you. Right, much like my, right. Just like my evaluation, this went long. Maybe. So go, go for it. Well, you know me, I'm probably not going to be short when I'm going short. Uh, but anyway, uh, revisiting the show. So again, I mentioned, I didn't remember any of it and not saying a lot when the plots get repeated so much, but you don't remember them. You know, it's not memorable. What's memorable is the opening and closing of the show is Mr. Rourke and Tattoo. That is absolutely iconic. And I find it ironic. They're trying to reboot the show uh, without kind of having something that iconic. I mean, I haven't seen the new one with Mrs. Mr. Rourke's niece, but I doubt she's as interesting as Ricardo Montalban. Uh, I have Guaranteed. a hard time believing that. I think he has an incredible screen presence here, whether it's acting. I mean, you know, SCTV, obviously, we didn't include that in the clip, but they parodied him. They had the Ricardo Montalban acting school with Eugene Levy doing uh, a slightly better, maybe a lot better impersonation of Mr. Rourke than me. Yeah, um, I don't know about they, that. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what people think. Maybe we'll link to it in the Instagram after this. But, you know, it, it's, um, it is kind of iconic, and I have to give it that. I think that's uh, – I'm going to talk about some of the good things first, and then I'm going to talk about some of the bad things like I normally do. 
right? So I think one of the great things is the casting. I think that, um, you know, as often is with these 70s shows, that's what seems to kind of hold, uh, that's what seems to kind of last is the fact that if they're well cast, then it it makes sense, right? I'm not talking about the fantasies. I'm not saying those are well cast because they're cast with whatever they were doing that week, whatever actors they could get. And, you know, some of them work better than others, as we'll discuss. Um, there is one great piece of casting that I will mention. Um, but but in general, the casting of Rourke um, with, you know, is, with Montalban as Rourke and Village as, as Tattoo is great. Right. That is that is pretty much undebatable to me. That's that's what I remember. Right. I remember that iconic to playing to playing the whole bit. It's it's kind of classic. Um, Now, the one thing that's really good about this is not only. Jeff talked about how it gets dark. I also want to talk about how uh, which Jeff mentioned some of the batshit craziness. Right. They weren't afraid to get crazy and they weren't afraid to start to delve into the mystery of who Mr. Rourke was. I kind of wish there was more of that. There is quite a bit of it. There is stuff where we learn that Rourke is probably immortal. Uh, he had a lost love from like Egyptian times. <laughs> and uh, there was one episode. He um, obviously has supernatural powers, right? That There's no question of that. And he's not always good which I like, he's actually, there's some fucked up shit What I'm going to go into my next section where I go into how dark the show is. Um, but I am going to go into a little bit of the craziness. And the first one I want to go into is Rourke had a couple of encounters with Satan himself, as he calls him Mephistopheles. He, he says in one episode, oh, this man is here. Mephistopheles is here to take my very soul, you know? <laughs> Because, uh, of course, the devil wants Mr. Rourke's soul. And the devil is one of those great pieces of casting. This is Roddy McDowell playing the devil. And what's interesting is when he appears, he's actually the negative of Mr. Rourke. Instead of having a white, we didn't talk of much about the iconic suits, right? The three-piece, 70s, super 70s, white three-piece suit with a black tie. Uh, when Roddy McDowell comes as Mephistopheles, he has a black suit with a white tie. So he's like a negative image of Rourke. And let's play that promo. On Fantasy Island, Rourke faces the biggest challenge of his career to save Carol Lindley's soul from the devil. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So there's one episode where, um, it's a later one, where the devil comes back and tries to get Rourke's soul, and he ends up almost taking Ju uh, was it Julie's soul. But this one's an earlier one where, um, you know, uh, uh, Carol Lindley, she's an actress I saw on two or three of these, actually. She is very prominent. And she's one of those women, like Linda Day George is another one. Linda Day George is in the Jack the Ripper episode. Yeah. They're just like, you You see them and you're like, holy shit. You know, I remember seeing this person a million times in the 70s. And then they just kind of faded, you know, whereas yeah. some actors in the 70s, you know, that you saw then stood the test of time, you know, like someone like Adrian Barbeau, you see her in the seventies. And of course she was in the John Carpenter films in the eighties because she was with him for a while. Right. So she's in the yeah. fog and escape from New York. So she kind of has a lasting image, but these other actors, you know, you just see Carol Lindley and you're like, Oh my God, I know who that is. Like, and the name would be on the tip of your tongue maybe. Right. Yeah. So at any rate, she makes a deal with the devil and let's, let's play uh, the first clip from this episode. You are about to lose your immortal soul. What are you saying? You should 
you have told me you were involved with the Prince of Darkness, Mrs. Green. Are you crazy? Mr. Rourke is right, Philip. I entered into a pact with Satan. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. By the way, honey, I forgot to tell you, I entered into a pact with Satan. Remember that time? I was yeah, oh, shit. Did, did, did I? I, I meant to tell you. <laughs> We, let's see. So let's see. We, 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 uh, I, I went to the store. I got the car serviced. I picked up groceries. Shit. That was the thing I didn't tell you. Right. And interestingly enough, the husband is played by Adam West. So oh, there you go. Batman fame. Yep. Now he eventually confronts the devil about this to try to get her out of it. And there's like this <laughs> loophole where I loophole. guess the devil has to say exactly how many souls he wants to take. And he says three. I guess the wife, the husband, and Mr. Rourke. But little does the devil know she's actually pregnant. So it was four. And since he got that wrong by some weird metaphysical <laughs> rule, he can no longer take over the soul. So he kind of gets really angry with work. I think all of that's in here. I'm not sure. But let's play the clip. Oh, this is a little goodness. longer. Oh, I'm so sorry. You did know Mrs. Breen was pregnant. Did you not? You are forbidden to touch the unborn child. So... If you cannot take all, you take nothing. <laughs> Damn you, Rock! Is that not what you have been trying to do? You lose again. You can't take any of us. <laughs> there you go, dude. So the best thing about this, right? It, this was a clip on YouTube, and there's a much more Roddy McDowell, right? So there's two yeah. great things about this. One is when he says, damn you, Rourke, the screen kind of gets all surreal, and there's fog, and he turns around, and these little devil horns have grown in his head uh, when he says that. So it's pretty awesome. But the other, the, my favorite thing, and I was telling Barbara about this, my wife about this, and she was dying over this too. So someone, the top comment on this scene on YouTube was, this is no special effects or bullshit. This is just two masters of the of their craft at the top of their game. <laughs> <laughs> so good uh, yeah so i watched i didn't watch that one actually i just watched clips of it but when i did watch completely i had to watch was this one where um annette funicello is a uh ventriloquist and she has this dummy yes you and i are writers on fantasy island we show up for work and we're gonna write an episode and you start off by saying okay i have an idea and i'm like all right let's hear it you say, Annette Funicello plays a ventriloquist. And I say, yeah. yes. I yes. am, yes. Starting, that is the starting point. Annette Funicello plays a ventriloquist. Annette Funicello from the beach movies, from the Disney, you know, Mickey Mouse Club, all that stuff, plays a ventriloquist. I am there. Yes. Oh, yeah, and it gets better. Go but for it. But the thing is, is that's the thing. One thing I thought about watching is it would have been so much fucking fun to write for the show. Because you could do literally anything. I'm surprised they just did so much of the same thing. You yeah. know, because, because they did some fucking shit that was absolutely crazy. And this is one of them. So she plays a ventriloquist. She has this dummy that's kind of sexy. Like a sexy, <laughs> what is it, Walter Bergen or whatever that, you know, uh, I forget the 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 puppet's name of Candace. You know, um, 
Kenneth Bergen's father. He was like oh, yeah, famous. Yeah. Um, Charlie McCarthy, I guess, is the the puppet or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, um, she has this sexy, you know, it's like a woman in a tux and tails, but it's kind of like sexy. And anyway, she's worried the puppet is taking over her mind. Okay. I'm so the puppet's it. personality is really, she does this terrible show for everyone and they laugh. And the puppet is just like, you're so plain. You're, you know, look at, I'm the real star, blah, blah, blah. So she wants to get rid of the puppet. And so what she did, what he, Rourke does is in this incredible sequence, he basically turns, separates the, he, he, he basically takes her essence out of her brain, puts it into the puppet and makes the puppet into a real woman. Mm. Like, so the puppet comes to life. But during this sequence, there's like laser beams shooting out of fucking Annette Funicello's eyes. There's like fucking weird rainbow effects around the puppet's eyes. And then it turns into this really hot 70s actress who you've probably seen before, who I didn't get the name of. But anyway, she's now the puppet. And she's, of course, as arrogant as ever. And now that Annette Funicello doesn't have that edgier side, she's like completely under the control of the puppet. Uh, and the puppet can hurt her by hurting herself. So she's like stabbing herself in the fucking hand <laughs> and hurting. I mean, dude, it's fucking crazy. I mean, how much cocaine was in that fucking writer's room? It was just like a fucking blizzard in there. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So anyway, the puppet actually. So Annette Puricello wants to be in love with this guy, but she's holding herself back because she can't. You know, somehow the puppet is making her like not have uh, enough, uh, you know, confidence and the puppet ends up fucking this guy. He fucks the fucking puppet. So mm. it's like fucking crazy. Eventually, she fucking burns the puppet. She throws the puppet on a fire, and it turns back into the puppet and burns to death, and then she's saved. But that's fucking how crazy this fucking shit got. You yeah, know, just how people spent crazy. their Saturday nights. And yeah, interesting. So the other thing about it, as we mentioned before, is the show is fucking surprising surprisingly dark so there's one episode i'm going to talk about the other half of this episode in another section of just overall bad stuff but there's one this episode that's the rock stars amusement park episode and one of the plots is of course scott Bayo and his siblings want to be rock stars but we'll talk about that part later the other half of this children's episode has a young uh, african-american kid he's with his mom and he's supposedly wants to perform this magic show for everybody. He's a good magician. He's doing like little magic tricks, but his real fantasy is to get his dad a gig. His dad is played by, um, uh, uh, Ted Lang on, of Isaac fame on the love boat. And his dad is a, a stunt man called the great Scott, which is obviously a ripoff of evil Knievel. Yeah. Um, and he wants to get his dad this job. And his dad is not an attentive father, right? His dad's always touring or whatever. And really, the son just wanted to spend time with him, right? So he gets him this job of do, doing this motorcycle stunt on Fantasy Island. And it's going to, all these reporters are going to be there. So he's going to become famous. But right before the stunt, the kid decides to try out the new Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel gets stuck. And this kid is hanging from the Ferris wheel basket. I mean, dude, I'm pretty... I do a lot of training, you know, I do pull-ups and shit. I can hang for a pretty long fucking time. There's no way I could hang as long as this kid is hanging. <laughs> he was there for like 10 minutes. He's like, daddy, come help me. So Ted Lang climbs up the Ferris wheel and goes and gets this kid. And, you know, he then decides I'm not going to do the stunt because the most important thing is my son. And I realize I learned my lesson. But of course, the mother looks at Rourke like, did you do this? And Rourke's kind of smirking. He basically put this kid's life in danger. 
to fucking teach the dad a lesson. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like he, and even if he wasn't really in danger, like there was some fantasy island magic there, it's scary. I mean, the mother and the father thought it was real. And so the dad goes and risks his life for his son. It's so fucked up. Yeah. Like Rourke is not necessarily good. Like he right. does a lot of crazy fucking bad things. So anyway, that's one example. The other example is I, the first episode I watched was the pilot. So this was the first Fantasy Island movie. So unlike most of the shows, there's two fantasies. There were three on this one and they were longer and more drawn out. So the first one is a most dangerous game episode where Hugh O'Brien, of course, wants to be hunted. Mm. Uh, and the reason why is he's the greatest hunter and he wants to be hunted. And he's hunted by these three guys and, you know, works at, and they all have some, it turns out they're all people he affected and they all have some motive to kill him. Right. And then somehow he gets a hooker again, prostitution being normalized, yeah. uh, who's played by Victoria principal. And I think the main reason she's in it is just to be Victoria principal. Yeah. You know, she's just there and she, he kind of, he Rourke, you know, she gets handcuffed to him. And so he has to save her life and all this, but whatever the, sh and then it ends and it turns out he felt guilty for all the animals he killed. So he wanted to be killed himself, you know, whatever. Um, there's another plot with Darren McGavin that's almost identical, uh, where he hunts a, a tiger and he knew he was going to die of some cancer. And so he gets killed and that's what he wanted to happen. So it's just fucking really fucked up and weird. But that's not the main one I wanted to talk about. There's another one with a fake funeral. Again, Carol Lindley is like the bad girl, um, you know, that this woman has this funeral. So everyone she can see what everyone thinks about her to choose which person to inherit her fortune. That one's whatever. Okay. The third one, I was the most bored by. So these first two, I'm like, oh, these are pretty good. They're typical twisty things, kind of dark. The third right. one was just, oh, you know, Bill Bixby's this old World War II veteran. And he wants to go and meet this lost love that he met during a bomb raid in London. And the weird thing about this is he's in this old age makeup. So you think, oh yeah, of course they're going to send him back in time and he's going to become young again. And it's like, they do that for one second. They send him back in time. It's Bill Bixby again. And then later, the next scene, he just has the old age makeup on again, this terrible old age makeup. Like, why hire Bill Bixby to do this? Why not just have an older actor do it? If you're just going to show him not made up in one second. Right. And then just have him. And the old age makeup is the worst old age makeup you've ever seen. Like, if I was a, a popular show, that's why. Dude, if I dressed up for Halloween and I just got some fucking cotton for a mustache and some fucking fucking gray makeup. It would look just as good as this fucking terrible makeup. <laughs> it's like the worst. So anyway, and the, the woman he wants to meet is played by Sandra D. So I'm like, oh, this is just going to be some love story. And they're going to realize they meant to be together and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking, this one's whatever. Well, they're in her apartment, which, of course, goes from looking 40s to 70s. There's no consistency. You know, they're in her apartment. The bomb, she, bomb happens. He finds a picture of her with another man and he starts getting enraged. And he fucking murders her. He fucking strangles her to death. So I was like, what the fuck? I was like, this is going to be the boring one. And it turns out it's fucking crazy as hell. So we had some clips and we were able to get them of like Bill Bixby going insane. So he basically comes out to work and says, I murdered her again, just like I did 30 years ago. Yeah. So Rourke's like, no, you didn't murder her. She got on the plane and they take him back to the room and she's not there and no, nothing's broken because it was a bomb. There was a bombing and things were falling. That's sorry. That's how he killed her. He killed her. And then he hid the fact that he murdered her 
by like shoving a beam onto her because yeah. everything was falling apart during the bombing. Um, I that was an important detail I didn't get to. But anyway, he's he's laughing maniacally. He's gone insane, and they just lead him away like he's going to go to a mental hospital. That's the end. Yeah, like like that's the fantasy. So that's how fucking dark this show would. I mean, it's just fucked up. And Rourke's just kind of amused. Oh, he will think about. And the clip of Rourke that I wanted to play was like he will think about murdering her for the rest of his life. Yeah, <laughs> like, and, maybe, oh, and maybe enjoying it. It sounds like yeah, yeah. Okay. The next one, we're going to play some more clips of this. So let's play the promo clip. Okay. And on Fantasy Island, a dream of stardom leads to the lair of the modern-day Marquis de Sade. Saturday night okay. on ABC. Yeah, how fun, right? Yeah. So um, this this plot Jeff alluded to, it's called The Victim. And it stars uh, Joan Prather, who's one of what, these 70s I, actresses. I, I, sorry, I got to ask a question. What percent of the audience of Fantasy Island knows anything about the Marquis de Sade? Yeah, that's a good question. And the other thing is the, the the bumper is actually wrong. It's not a dream of stardom. It's a dream that she just meet the perfect man. Yeah. So that's not even the right plot. Anyway, but yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's true. What would they even know? And then and then and then the thing what's funny is it has actually pretty accurate. Um it gets really this is like the most fucked up fucking episode ever. So basically, Joan Prather, who's one of these 70s actresses you've seen a million times, right? She's like this beautiful 70s actress. She wants to meet up with a perfect man she had one date with and they got separated. And he is played by James Darren, who, of course, has been in many things. But I just should mention he was on Deep Space Nine as Johnny Fontaine or whatever. Um, I forget the, the character's name. He's kind of a Frank Sinatra lounge singer in the holodeck. Uh, some kind of not the best uh Deep Space Nine episodes. A few of them are okay. But anyway, he's also singing in those episodes and he sings here. So there's a clip early in the episode where they're on a date and you just hear feelings, you know, the song, (laughs) whoa, 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 feelings. And it's being sung by James Darren, but he's not singing. And it's just these seeds of them having a romantic dinner and wine. And then all of a sudden she wakes up and she looks around and there's all these other women around her. And she's in this room. She doesn't know where she is. One of the women, creepily enough, is actually Dorothy Stratton. She has the most speaking parts of any of the uh, any of these women. There are a few of them that have speaking parts. So let's play this clip. Where, where am I? How did I get here? <laughs> you were brought here on the wings of angels, just like the rest of us. What are you What are you What are you talking about? Our host, well, the handsome and charming Michael Duval. You see what uh, happened to you happened to all of us here. Champagne. He did a number on it. What we're trying to say is that you, all of us here, are prisoners in this house. His prisoners. I don't understand. We perform services for the men he brings here. Most of them old, all of them very rich. Believe it. All right. So, yeah, this is kind of a fucked up Bluebeard thing or something. Um, I mean, it's like she he basically dates these women, drugs them and then makes them prostitutes. This is the story of a family show on uh, ABC. Yeah. Right. Um, and it gets even more fucked up. So after this, Yvonne DiCarlo comes in and she's a much older than her Lily Munster days. And she is playing a madam. And this this sequence here 
basically Joan Prather's character refuses to comply. She, you know, she refuses to, uh, you know, she kind of spits on James Darren at a dinner and kind of, you know, rebels. And she's shown earlier, she's shown this woman who's all beat up by this big thug that James Darren has. Uh, and that's what you get, you know, so she kind of sees the consequences of what you get if you disobey him and you don't go along with the plan. So then we get this scene, right, where Yvonne DiCarlo is going to punish her. Uh, let's play that. Julie, I tried to warn you. So I hope this is the last lesson in cooperation that I'll ever have to give you. Now, move over here and put your hands through the metal rings. Julie, do it. It'll happen anyways, and she can only make it worse. <laughs> Dude, so, so we have a scene here where it's essentially a fucking sex torture dungeon. Yeah. And there are these rings hanging from the ceiling. And Yvonne DiCarlo is smacking a riding crop in her hand because she's basically going to beat her. You know, they don't play that. It skips to the next scene. But um, but it's implied that she's going to put her hand through the rings and be horse whipped. I mean, this is like Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS kind of shit. This is yeah. like pri- women in prison cult film level uh, on a regular family TV show. And not good women in prison stuff like Sweet Sugar starring those <laughs> Yeah. But I have to say this is good to me because it's so fucked up. And I love this kind of cult film thing that the whole darkness I love. And I almost wish it was even more dark. Like, I I really enjoyed the hell out of these episodes because they just shocked the hell out of me. I'm like, what the hell? How dark can this thing get? And this was a primetime network show followed Love Boat where people would go to Puerto Vallarta and have. I know it's all this romance. And then you're, you know. (laughs) It's fucking Ilsa torturing yeah. uh, women. All right. So so now I'm going to talk about that's kind of, I guess, about as good as the show gets to me. There are a few other uh, notable, amusing things, but they're mostly on the side of the bad. So I'm going to talk about the bad now. So let's play this intro clip. This was really funny. We found so this. This is bad, right? Yeah, this okay. is bad. All right. Tonight on Fantasy Island, Tony Tennille comes face to face with horror. <laughs> it's Daryl Dragon. You see Daryl Dragon's face. Yeah. <laughs> Daryl Dragon wearing nothing That's but right. his uh, captain's hat. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I mentioned earlier that uh, you know, they repeated, you know, Jeff went through a whole series of plots and and basically these tropes, and and they just repeated the same idea over and over and over again. I mean, even worse than something like Three's Company, if that's possible. Um one of them, of course, is the most dangerous game. I mentioned the Darren McGavin and Hugh O'Brien episodes, but even they did this one episode that I thought was kind of amusing, and I watched it all because it related to our game show episode. They had this one called the this segment called the Quizmasters, which stars Gene Rayburn of Match Game fame, and then this other game show host called Jan Murray, who was more in the late '60s, early '70s, and he hosted a few game shows I never really watched, so I wasn't really familiar with him. But basically, the idea is they want to have a game show to the death. <laughs> so whoever loses dies, right? So so they get on this quiz show, and the set is so funny. It's so cheap. You know, they have this weird kind of wheel of fortune. Dumb and, Doris. And they was have these so three dumb. doors, right? Yeah. And and the questions are like super easy, like, who is the first president? of the United States. You know, it's like that dumb, right? As d- dumber than even fucking 70s game shows, right? And one of them will answer it right. And, they're, and then he's like, okay, choose a door, 
one of behind one of these doors is death. Right. So this is basically how the show goes. They do a question. One of them answers it right. They go through a door and Gene Rayburn goes through the door and he's basically in Salem in the late 17th century. Right. Salem, which they already did one. Right. Yeah, yeah, Salem, yeah. Massachusetts. Right. The yeah. witch burnings. Right. Yeah. He's, and they're burning a witch and all this. They had one with Leslie Nielsen as like the conqueror worm or whatever, which is so funny because you can't really take Leslie Nielsen seriously at all. Right. Um, but um. Yeah, they had another Salem one. They've had at least one, maybe more. So they use, they reuse the Salem plot and they're running through and he gets this woman who's going to be burned as a witch. And it turns out it's this woman in real life he loves, right? Mm. And she, like his, he's she works with him on the game show and he's, did, he's like, did, he, like a did he have producer. the skinny mic in Salem? He didn't have any skinny mic. No, oh, he no. just runs through Salem. They run through back through the door. They live, so they don't die. Next, Jan Murray answers. And of course, he goes back with the woman and in another door, she has to go with him for some reason. And then they're all of a sudden robbing a bank. And he's like, oh, this is just part of the game. Let's rob the bank. And then the cops come and they shoot at them and then they escape. So it's like, it's like, okay, we had Salem. Now we have bank robbery in the 30s. So they obviously had those sets from previous episodes that they played over and over again. And then finally, both of them go through the door. And this door is death. And they both have to go through them, through there. And they're being hunted by, uh, like, native islanders mm. with like blow you know poison blow darts and all this and they've got to save the woman and of course they come to realize that it's stupid that they should fight to the death and all this but again that's another most dangerous game uh so they ripped off their own they had even when they did something original with this game show idea they had to just make it into these three segments where they just recycled ideas right yeah uh there's also nightmares there's several episodes where someone has a nightmare and they want to relive the nightmare to see why they're having it and see if they can resolve it. Like there's one woman who uh, her, her mother died in a fire and, you know, she was, she was wanting to relive this nightmare to see what had happened. And it turned out, you know, she had blamed herself, but it wasn't her fault and all this. Um, and then of course she sees that her dad is going to, it's also a premonition because she sees her dad's going to die and they say them. Dad is played by Ray Milland. Um, there's several of those. There's several relive the younger days, right? There was one episode we were talking about. I think this, this was one of the episodes I think that you first watched, which is this one actor goes back to the fifties to be the king of the strip. Yeah. Right. Danny and he's got Bonaducci. this, yeah. right. With Danny Bonaducci is, is one of the guest stars. He's his rival race driver. And, yeah. you know, it's just, again, there's so many of those. There's so many attract women episodes. Yeah. Right. I want to be able to get all the women. And, you know, that's one you mentioned. Uh, there's important discoveries. Right. There's the mermaid episode, which John Saxon of Nightmare on Elm Street and Enter the Dragon and all these great movies, uh, cult movies of the 70s and 80s. He plays a scientist who wants to make a new discovery. And of course, he discovers Michelle Williams as the mermaid. And there's kind of this splash kind of plot. Um, and then the Sasquatch episode, which I'm going to talk about in another context in a minute. Um, Okay, so so that's kind of cheesy that they repeat things. The other thing is their shameless 70s zeitgeist mining here. Um, I mentioned The Great Scott. You know, that's just an evil Knievel uh, ripoff, which, again, Happy Days did the same shit, right? Jack the Ripper episode. Okay, this episode's kind of great because it has the funniest fucking Jack the Ripper ever. It's big, fat actor Victor Buono, who's most famous for playing King Tut on the old 60s Batman show. Um, <laughs> and he looks absolutely ridiculous. He's got these crazy facial expressions, and he keeps trying to kill um, 
Linda Day George, you know, who's like a researcher who wants to find Jack the Ripper. And it's pretty cool because, you know, it's pretty dark. You know, there's some bloody murders and stuff, and he's kind of following her around. But what ends up happening is he follows her into the present day, which is a complete ripoff of one of my favorite movies of all time that came out right around this time. It came out a year before this, time after time, with Malcolm McDowell's H.G. Wells, who goes looking for Jack the Ripper, uh, David Warner in modern day San Francisco. We might have to do this because this movie is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, it's one of my favorite movies ever. It still holds up to me. Um, I've seen it many times. But when I watched this, I just got pissed off because it was a complete ripoff of that. Like him coming into the modern world and going, oh, I can kill all these modern people. And, you know, he's all he's all happy. But eventually, of course, Rourke intervenes. Right. And he stops him. Um, Actually, he gets killed in the present day. And and that's how he becomes a mystery. Right. OK. And then there's this episode called The Big Yellow Bird which is basically Peter Graves uh, is wants to hunt the fucking Sasquatch dude. And I had to watch this because the fucking Sasquatch was all over seventies TV. I mean, you had the ridiculous $6 million man Sasquatch, but this episode manages to be even dumber. Okay. So he's up with this other scientist played by another, probably world famous old actress who I didn't get the name down of. And they're, they want to approach the Sasquatch, but she's like an expert and realizes, well, the Sasquatch is not just a monster. He actually has ESP. <laughs> so they had to make it even more 70s because, again, you know, we had the, the Fury, we had Carrie, we had all this ESP shit in the 70s. Scanners, so, of course, yeah. yeah, scanners would come a little later. They, you know, they had all this ESP bullshit, right? So, so he has ESP. So they have to fool him by getting in a glider that's painted like a bird. So it'll be curious, even though it doesn't look anything like a real bird. Mm. Like if, I mean, if, if the Sasquatch has eyes, he would be able to see it does not a bird. Somehow he fools his ESP. Yeah. But anyway, they end up hunting the Sasquatch and there's a whole Sasquatch tribe. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Peter Graves is going to kill him because he wants to get the body back or something. It's really vague as to why they're there at all. But eventually, he the Sasquatch has a chance to kill him, but he doesn't. He helps him up. And that's the lesson they learn is that we learn from the Sasquatch what it really means, what we should really be as humans or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I just thought these whole zeitgeisty kind of 70s mining the plot, you know, stuff like Law and Order would always do, you know, just like take grab from the headlines. This is kind of the same thing. Uh, and then just general fucking terribleness, right? There, there's some episodes where the cringeworthy factor is just fucking insane, right? So one of these is the other half of the Great Scott episode, uh, which is called Rock Stars. And it features a family of uh, child actors that you've seen a million times, including Scott Bayo and Jill Whelan. And they want to be rock stars and they're musicians, but basically... Uh, Rourke's all, oh, you're already stars here on Fantasy Island. So all these kids run and tear their clothes and shit. It's like Beatlemania. And, um, but of course, all these kids are brothers and sisters and they're all orphaned, mm. right? So their parents are dead. They were lost at sea. And this woman is chasing them to the island because she wants to move them back to their separate foster homes, but they want to be together. And that's why they want to be rock stars. Was they it Miss Hannigan to... from Annie? No, but it was like that, right? <laughs> And 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 so basically they 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 Mr. Rourke says, Oh, your record album came out. Now we didn't record this and they play it, and it's like this terrible bubblegum music, kind of like the music uh, Scott Bayo played on the later part of Happy Days, where it sounds like a TV theme or something. Yeah. Um, and they play that and they're all that doesn't sound like us. Um, and uh the um 
you know, he said, well, it's because we did some echoing and production or whatever. So it turns out they end up lip syncing to perform for the, they have the biggest record company exec around. Um, and um, they, they, they invite him to see them play. But of course, Tattoo, they paid him $10 to play the record in the background and they're lip syncing. And of course, who is the most popular record exec? You know, the hippest guy who's got his finger on the pulse. It's fucking actor Bernard Fox who played fucking Dr. <laughs> Bombay on fucking Bewitched. And he's like wearing hey, this fucking, he looks too, like a yes. fucking, yeah, he looks yeah. like an ice cream uh, fucking yeah. vendor. You know, he's wearing like this ridiculous frilly tuxedo and he's just like, but then he's like, yeah, your music was okay, but your lyrics were brilliant. And I need lyricists. So they all get to become lyricists. But then, of course, the woman comes around and she's like, nope, you got to go back to the foster homes. Mr. Work walks in right on time and says, oh, their parents were found. So they're alive. So the kids all get to be together. That's how fucking dumb. I mean, that's like the dumbest fucking thing ever, right? Yeah. Okay. And then they, of course, had the ubiquitous clip episode. We talked about this in Happy Days and in Three's Company. And in this one, the whole um, premise is that uh, Tattoo crashes his little car and yeah, he gets a concussion. Drunk. See, yeah. and look, Rourke warned him in the reenactment about his uh, you know, operation of his vehicle. He did not heed those warnings. And look what happened. He got into a car crash. He got into a car crash and his doctor is the actor who played Oscar Goldman on fucking uh, Six Million Dollar Man. And the doctor's like, I don't know what's wrong with him. We'll need to run more tests. It's like the worst fake doctoring ever. Yeah. And um, but then, the, you know, he says, keep him awake because if he falls asleep, he could die because of the concussion. So work keeps him awake by telling him, remember this time when this guy came on the yeah. island, right? He tells him this fantasy story. And then, of course, they remember a time when they did a little show together. So let's play this wonderful clip of their uh, performance. Lights. Maestro, introduction, please. They say a knife in the back can cause you pain. Well, so does an ankle sprain. So there you go. Wow. Uh, it's weird that Rourke won a Tony because he can't really see. He's just talking. No. Yeah. He, Nothing. He, oh, it's like love. And the tattoo. Like, oh, my God. It's so yeah, bad. It is so bad. I mean, that's like pushing the charm thing a little too far. You know, it's like put. it's kind of it's kind of like, you know, we're we're having these cute this cutesy relationship between the two. And we're it's just going way too far. Yeah. Um. All right. The last thing I wanted to talk about is, of course, another thing we talk about is the sexy 70s. And, you know, obviously we had a show like The Victim, which is just like, uh, you know, this perverted cult film on a TV show. Um, but they would also do stuff like just have guests on just because of the way they looked. Right. Yeah. Like Barbie Benton was on many times. Right. But um, 
one of the things, the funniest things with Barbie Benton is, uh, well, there actually is one with her and Audrey Landers that, that I watched part of it and I couldn't get through it because the acting was so bad. So they actually played two old women who were in the Zigfield Follies, like in the 20s and 30s, and they wanted to be young again to do another show. <laughs> and it's them in old age makeup. Like, again, uh, really bad old age makeup. And their old voices, like Barbie Benton's like, oh, Mr. Rock. You know, I, I mean, it's like this grandma voice she's trying to do. And she's like the worst actress. And of course, you know, then they become young and hot, you know, and all yeah. that. And I think uh, that was kind of interesting because they had Barbie Benton act a little more. But most of the episodes Barbie Benton is in, she's just into be eye candy. Right. So yeah. there's one episode where she's a centerfold for a magazine called Rooster Magazine. And dude, this is insane. Okay. <laughs> You know, Playboy, they have the Playboy bunny ears. Well, yeah. Rooster, she's ah. wearing a bikini that's all feathers, and it has a fucking rooster tail, giant rooster tail coming out of the ass. <laughs> that's what she's wearing. That, that's the rooster centerfold. <laughs> like, it's like, dude, I'm telling you, these guys were on cocaine. They were they were just nuts. They were like, how? what, what outfit can we put Barbie Benton in to ogle her is what they were doing. Yeah, basically. but it's like the craziest one. Yeah, and they did. I mean, she's wearing... And there's another episode where she's on it and she's like, you know, in this hot dress. They have one with Jill St. John where she has amnesia, okay? And they show her with, you know, she's like, I guess she's a bad person. She's kind of a, like, a, she's like a corp, runs a corporation and is like really mean. And, you know, it's kind of a Scrooge-like thing where she's yeah. kind of forced to see how she is. And she has to smell this weird leaf on her hand to get more memory. It's just weird. Like, how about my fantasy is I just get my memory back? But Rourke does it in this weird way where she kind of remembers some things and these guys are trying to scam her and all this. But as soon as he's like, he's all, let's turn you back into the person you really are. And she's just wearing normal clothes. As soon as she remembers who she is or he puts her back to who she was, she's just boom, hot, slutty disco dress. Yeah, Like just completely no reason for her to change clothes at all. And you'd think she'd be in some kind of business suit. She's corporate. No, they just put her in the skimpiest, hottest outfit because it's Jill St. John. And they just want you, you know, to be able to see that. And the worst slash best version of this was the episode where Phyllis Davis is related to the spy Mata Hari. And she wants to kind of relive the experience of being Mata Hari to clear her name as like a kind of uh, a turncoat or a double agent and all this. And the whole reason to do this is to put her in the Mata Hari bikini. That's the whole reason for this. And she does this whole show, but it's like, yeah, it's just because Phyllis Davis is amazing looking and they just want to exploit that. But there's no other reason to have her be in that part a and B to have that story because all it really is, is like, it's kind of comedic. They have like these bad French accents and they got the German guy and all this. And she's, it's kind of a comedy, but it's like, she never changed really. I mean, she kind of changes out of the outfit later but she's mostly in that outfit for most of it. And that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah. And they did that a lot. You know, they did that a lot with these actresses. Now, as far as my final eval, look, I think the format obviously is standing the test of time because they keep remaking it. It doesn't, it hasn't been successful. We'll see with the new show, but it's kind of an interesting formula. And it's, you know, it seems like that may stand the test of time. And I do think. I, I'm a huge Ricardo Montalban fan. I'm definitely more of a fan of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan and Space Seed than I am of this. Like, I think his best performance is in that film. And him and Shatner are both amazing. It's the best thing they both ever did, right? But I still think he's great here. And this is the one he's going to, he's probably going to be as remembered for this as that, right? This was his biggest role. He was on the show. He lasted for seven years. 
Um, and I also like that the show got fucking batshit crazy and went super dark. And I almost wish they would have done more of that. Um, but again, the fact that I couldn't remember any of it, um, you know, was interesting to me. Uh, I, I'm really surprised I didn't remember the devil one, but I may yeah. not have seen that because that is really awesome. Uh, but, but again, uh, you know, it just, I have to short it because it's just not very good. It wasn't, it was funny to watch. It, and some of the episodes were entertaining from a like, what the fuck aspect, but mostly I was completely bored. You know, I even fast forwarded through some of the funeral plot one of the pilot, just because I wanted to get to the, I was, I'm glad I didn't fast forward the Bill Bixby one. Cause that turned out to be crazy. But the floor, the, the, the funeral one is kind of a, it's almost like an Agatha Christie like thing, but not as entertaining. You know, so it's just not that great of a show. And it just didn't really hold up for me overall. So I think I'm going to have to short it. Okay. That's it for me. All right. So I guess we're both short. I have, you know, an alternate path through time where you might go slightly long, but I have to say I'm short as well. So there you go. Fantasy Island. We're both short. Uh, We'll leave you with this. Uh, Go check out some episodes. Uh, Maybe we'll post some links to a a few of the ones we're talking about. We got to post the one for the victim. I mean, yeah, the victim is on YouTube. It's yeah. on someone hacked it, so it's, a, it's available on YouTube. Otherwise, Tubi has all of them. So, yeah. so enjoy uh, Fantasy Island, everyone. We'll catch you next time. This is uh, Jeff and Slip signing right. off for signing CFX. Off.